If you can hear my voice, clap once. If you can hear my voice, clap twice. If you can hear my voice, clap three times. Good. Everything you ever need to know you learned in kindergarten, which is pretty much true. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing uh, the experiences that you had um, earlier. And now what we're going to do is, um, let's see if this is working okay. Can you hear me okay? Is that a little better when it's up there? Okay, let's put it right where it needs to be. One second. There we go. Okay, good. So what we're going to do now is go on an exploration of building on the first-person experiences that you had, that some of us described, and I'll weave that together with having done this now with so many different people around the planet, and say that what's really fascinating is while every human being is unique, there is a common ground that emerges when people do a, a, a similar practice like the wheel. Uh, and what's interesting about the wheel from uh, the science point of view is the wheel was simply created by thinking about how integration is health and consciousness is needed for change. And what's been so fascinating about a practice to try to integrate consciousness is that it turns out to actually help people. So that's very interesting. And after the wheel was created, um, I wrote a book called The Developing Mind, which talked about the centrality of integration across the different sciences. And then my daughter was in preschool, and in the um, book that we wrote called Parenting from the Inside Out, which translated The Developing Mind for Parents, we, we wanted to encourage the reader, the parent, to be conscientious, to be caring, to be intentional, to be conscious. And that's, those are too many words to use in a book. So we said, we need one word that summarizes all that stuff. So we said, let's tell the parent to be mindful. And so when the book came out and we were doing workshops based on the book, people asked us when we were going to teach them to meditate. And I had never meditated. I wasn't a meditator. Mary Hartzell, my co-author, was not a meditator. And I was already thought of as kind of like a pretty bizarre person saying that relationships shape the brain and stuff like that. And the mind was more than the brain. So the last thing I was interested in was being associated with something as weird as meditation. So when they said, when are you going to teach us to meditate? I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, you say in your book that meditation is like one of the basic principles of good parenting. I said, which book are you reading? They go, parenting from the inside out. I said, show me. And they opened the book to the part of the book that says, be mindful. And, and they would say, here, it says meditate. I said, that doesn't say meditate. It says be mindful, being conscientious, caring, intentional, all this kind of stuff, conscious. And they go, no, it's a form of meditation. I said, what kind of meditation is that? And they go, mindfulness meditation. And I actually didn't know anything about it. So right around that time, I get a phone call from a guy in the psychotherapy networker Rich Simon, and he says, I'd like you to give a keynote address again, but in addition to giving the keynote address, the other guy giving the keynote address, I'd like you to be on a panel with him. I said, well, who's he? He goes, some guy named John Kabat-Zinn. So I said, well, who's that? And he goes, well, he does this thing called mindfulness. And I go, oh, my God, another mindfulness thing. What's with this mindfulness, mindfulness? 
what is this mindfulness stuff? He goes, well, he's written a book, and you can read the book. I think by then he had written two books or something, and they were like two papers. And that was it back then. So I read his two papers, read the two books. And I said, this is really weird because... And when I went to Washington, D.C. to be on the panel with John Kabat-Zinn, we were also on a panel with the third keynote presenter, who is Diane Ackerman, who is a poet and a, um, a, a writer. Um, so Diane and John and I are on the panel together. And I said, in my part of the panel talk, I said, this is really weird, but I'm an attachment researcher. You know, I study parent-child relationships. And in our field, we've discovered that there are like seven or eight outcomes of parent-child relationships that are securely attached that are associated with integrative processes in the brain. And um, I've read your two books and your two papers, and, you know, it's just weird, but whatever this mindfulness meditation thing is, your outcomes are identical to secure attachment outcomes. And John didn't know about the attachment field, and I didn't know about the meditation field. So he goes, um, your description of these outcomes, you know, which included like the ability to tune in to the body and having a coherent sense of self and being resilient and things like that, there's a list of nine. Um, that list is not only our outcome measures for mindfulness, but the list you just told me about is the way of being mindful. He goes, where did you get that list? I said, I got that list from a family I was taking care of where the mom, sadly, had been in a terrible car accident. And she destroyed these integrative areas of her brain. And these were the nine things she lost. And it turns out that seven, or maybe it was, and then later it was eight, eight of those nine are proven outcomes of secure attachment. But how many of those do you think are about mindfulness meditation outcome? He goes, all nine. He goes, it's not just our outcome measures, it's the way of being mindful. He goes, but you don't know anything about meditation. I said, that's for sure. And he goes, um, why don't you go meditate? I said, right now? He goes, no, 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 I'll send you somewhere. So he sent me, <laughs> he sent me to this, uh, this week of silence with a bunch of scientists. It was a hundred of us um, meditating together for the first time in IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, started by Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield, who started Spirit Rock. And um, so I'm there, and, you know, I wrote a book about it called The Mindful Brain, but the, as, a, as a newbie, just like entering this field of mindfulness, and my guess was the reasons why mindfulness meditation and secure attachment have the same outcomes is because of the same thing. That parent-child relationships that are integrative are allowing energy and information flow patterns in a relational way to start with attunement, where you embrace the differentiated nature of your child from how you expect your child to be. You see your child for who she really is. And then you link with these compassionate, respectful connections. So we would call that, in my field, attunement or parental presence. And parental presence is the key factor that leads to the growth of resilience in the child. Presence is exactly, at least my outsider's view, is what mindfulness leads to. And I'll never forget the moment, you know, because I've been doing the wheel for a while. And uh, when I did the practice, Joseph Goldstein was my, you get to talk, even though it's a silent retreat, you get to talk to your teacher. So I said to Joseph, you know, I don't know, I kind of think of it like a wheel with a hub and a rim, and he goes, don't be too sure. 
And he was so much like my father, who was like very, very strong. And I go, okay, I won't be too sure. So I just like went underground with it. And uh, <laughs> so it was very, it was actually, it was a very painful moment, actually. But it was actually good because I shouldn't have been too sure. And um, so, so I did that thing. And then I got trained in MBSR like three weeks later. And then from the MBSR training, uh, I got in a car and drove with John. And then he and I talked for three days with Diane Ackerman and our dear friend John O'Donohue. O'Donohue. Um, and you can actually watch that three. Were any of you there at the San Francisco gathering of Mind and Moment? It was an amazing thing. You know, now, I mean, John just died right after that. So it was an incredible, incredible thing. And so we, we, if you want to watch that, you can, you can get it from our website. But it was just an amazing moment of life for me to know nothing about the mindfulness field. And so this is our, for our spiritual um, omnivore. I was raised in a family where you couldn't talk with the S word. You know, you couldn't say things like spiritual or religious or anything like that. Or you literally were kicked out of at least the, the meal, if not the house. Um, and so, you know, it, it wasn't my background. And so around that time, a few years before I had met John O'Donohue, O'Donohue and uh, he and I were working on this idea of spirituality. And then I met John Kabat-Zinn, who doesn't ever use the word spirituality. You probably know that. Um, but at least it was about mindfulness. And it was so interesting. And around the same time, actually before that, or a little, like a few months before, I met Jack Cornfield. And for some reason, Jack had asked me to teach with him and um, uh, Houston Smith, who's, you know, this big comparative religious guy. And so Jack says to me, where did you learn about mindfulness? And I go, oh, my God, another mindfulness question. So I, I said, I don't know anything about mindfulness. He goes, you do know about mindfulness. I said, I don't. He goes, you do. I don't. He said, you do. So I said... Okay, well, he goes, well, where'd you learn about it? I said, and the only thing that came to mind was this thing I had never told anybody about. And when Jack and I started teaching a lot together, I, I wouldn't say it, but then I started being more relaxed, I guess, as I got older or something, I don't know. Um, and it was a time when I was, just before I was 20 years old, and uh, I was working for the World Health Organization studying um, folk healers, and it was a complicated study, but anyway, I was doing a study. So I had to ride a horse up to the mountains uh, of Waula to go meet the queen of the mushrooms. And um, this was with a kid, me, who had a drug-addicted relative. And so I had an absolute psychological aversion to any kind of substances that altered your brain state because I saw how it destroyed a person's life. So I had nothing ethically against it. It was just psychologically. It's like if you, you eat a strawberry and it, it's a bad strawberry. You just don't eat strawberries anymore. Anyway, so I'm going to study this queen of the mushrooms, and in the course of riding a horse up to this mountain place, the saddle got loose, and the saddle went to the horse's belly to full gallop, and my feet stayed in the stirrups, and I was dragged, they tell me, about 100 yards, and they thought I was dead. And, um, and then they thought I must have broken my neck, you know, which I didn't break. But I, I destroyed my face, I broke my nose, lost all these teeth, broke my arm. But the biggest thing was, and I don't know why I was telling Jack this at our lunch, I lost my identity. And for 24 hours, I was wide awake and had no idea who I was. 
and everything was hilarious. <laughs> Even though I had these broken teeth, everything was busted. I, you know, so someone might give me like some water and I would just look at it and laugh and like the light would shimmer through and it'd be all these wild things were happening. And, you know, it was just amazing. And I, and, you know, and I, I kind of knew I didn't know who I was. So I would ask people who I am and just didn't really make much sense. And so I learned from that experience uh, to be more careful when you get on a horse, uh, first of all. <laughs> you know, they blow their bellies up, especially the young ones. They know what to do. They blow their bellies up so that when you ride, if after about a minute or two, you've got to get off the horse and tighten it up again because they do that on purpose. They don't like a tight you know, cinch underneath them. Anyway, I should have known that, but I didn't. Um, and so should the person putting on that horse. Um, but anyway... But I always thought it was an existential issue because things were very different after that. I had this attitude towards identity as being kind of fluffy. And I always thought it was either existential, you know, near-death experience and, you know, whatever, or maybe brain damage. I didn't want to talk to anyone about it. So anyway, so here I am talking to Jack, and I said, you know, and he had to go and I had to go, so we left this restaurant in San Rafael. I went back where I was writing this book, Mindsight, and uh, he was doing some other stuff. But then he calls me up. He says... Dan, I said, Jack. He goes, yeah. He goes, I can't stop thinking about what you said. I go, about what I said about what? He goes, about the horse accident. I go, what about it? He goes, don't you understand that people will meditate for decades to get what you got literally by accident? (laughs) There's a silence on the phone. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you don't understand what I'm saying. I said, it's not that I don't understand what you're saying. What you're saying makes no sense. Why would someone want to break their nose and break their teeth and break their arm meditating? And he's laughing his head off. He goes, you have no idea what I'm saying. I said, no, you're not making any sense. He goes, people try to loosen their identity. And I said to him, I get kind of teary, and I said, I have never talked to anyone about this in my life. And I have always felt kind of like a freak. Because I've never taken this identity thing, like, you know, people call me Dan, I go, yeah, right, that's what you think, you know. You know but, but I've never taken it too seriously since this horse event. And he's laughing and laughing his head off. He goes, you just don't get it, do you? I said, no, no, I don't really understand. Why would someone intentionally loosen their identity? Because it's kind of weird to live in this world where everyone thinks their identity is actually who they are. And then we're talking, and I said, you know, it actually feels kind of good to talk to you about this. And then he goes, welcome to the family. <laughs> and it was so beautiful because up to that point, you know, I never had anyone I would talk to about that. And it isn't that, you know, because my identity came back after 24 hours. It's not like I run around saying, I don't know who I am, although I met people like that. Um, and they're fascinating to talk to. But there is this thing we're going to talk about um, right now to get into it, to understand it. And, you know, the wheel practice is a very interesting parallel to that story about the horse. Because in many ways, if I could be absolutely aware without identity, think about what that means about identity itself. It's a construction. It's not an essential feature of who you are. And think about how we can expand identity from the false illusion of our separateness. So, 
all that time, especially with, after what Joseph said to me, you know, I just was doing the wheel, teaching my students, then I started doing the workshops. And when the results came out so universally across all the countries I am able to do it in, because I fly around a lot, um, it just became really, really interesting. And so Jack and I were teaching once in Seattle. And uh, you know, we do these things together. Like in January, we're doing this thing together where we it's just three days with this Jack and Dan show. And one time we did this bigger thing in Seattle. And a Microsoft engineer, I was telling you this, this earlier, this Microsoft engineer does the wheel, we take a break, we go out for lunch or whatever, or comes back after the break, takes the microphone, and he goes, I'm a 70-year-old, just-retired Microsoft engineer. There's like 500 mostly therapists in the room. And he goes, and my wife, who's a therapist like you guys, she dragged me here. I didn't want to come here. And I've never meditated in my life, and I've never had psychotherapy before. So we're all going... Like, what's next? And he goes, I did that wheel thing. I bent that spoke around. You know that part? And I go, yeah, I know that part. And he goes, and then he gets really quiet, and he gets teary. And he goes, something shifted in me. I don't know what it was. And I walked out. This is where the Seattle Needle is. I walked out into the garden. Now he's talking, like, with hardly any words, but slowly but I'll go faster just save us time and he basically says I, I'm out there and I'm watching a gardener with a hose and the water is coming out of the hose and he's watering the flowers and there are butterflies and there are birds and he starts crying and he goes we're all one <laughs> and every you I mean you hear the recording of this it's just you could hear a pin drop in this room and that has happened over and over and over. We were just in Esalen. Tisha and I were just teaching in Esalen. Hi, Tisha. Um, we were teaching in Esalen together. Stuff like this happens, and we're going to get into this uh, mechanism. It happened the week before, you know, the same thing happens. And it's happened every time. And so the question is, what is going on that someone who doesn't even want to be there, someone who is no interest in meditating, does this thing, 30-minute practice of turning the spoke around, and gets that experience. The week before Tisha was there, I was teaching with Dacher Keltner, you know, the professor who started the Greater Good Society, a Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley. So Dacher and I were there with Shauna Shapiro and Amishi Jha, who's a big brain researcher, um, and we did the wheel. And Dacher says, let's do, let's just do a research questionnaire right now. I said, okay. So he takes the standard mysticism scale and he does a review of the 150 people in the room uh, after they did the wheel. And he got about 35 to 50% of the people raising their hands for every mysticism question. Mysticism like time disappeared, I felt to be part of a greater whole, there's this thing I, hard for me to describe, but it's kind of emptiness and fullness all at the same time. And when I read Michael Pollan's book, how many of you read Michael Pollan's book? When I read that on hallucinogens, you know, how to change your mind, my book had already gone on the printer, and what's fascinating about it is the quotes he has from hallucinogen use are basically identical quotes you'll see in the aware book about people doing the wheel. 
as I mentioned, I don't have personal experience with that because my relative was an addict. Um, but it was really fascinating. It was really, really fascinating. And so we can ask the question, what is the mechanism of the wheel of awareness? And we're going to study that in the brain. But even more than the brain, what could be the mechanism of it with our understanding of the mind? So what I'm going to do with you now is um, go through a discussion to try to make sense of why when people bend that spoke around or even look at the space between mental activities, why do they say things like this? And if you want, the, the trouble with doing what I'm about to do, and you can see if you want to do it, when I say raise your hand, let's just see. I'll say these things, but you can just see, not that if you didn't have that, you can feel badly that you didn't have it. This is always the risk as an educator. So sometimes it's better just not to have people raise their hands. But it's just an interesting thing to see if you did. But if you didn't have it, don't worry about it because, first of all, you can keep on doing it and it can happen or not or whatever. Uh, you, do you want to raise your hand and see if you're up for it? Just, just to see. Some people feel when they bend the spoke around or they look at the space between mental activities, they get this feeling that there's this vastness that arises. Anyone have a vastness feeling? Raise your hand really, really high so we can see. Okay, so that's like at least a third of us, okay? So that's interesting. And now I'm done with the 10,000-person study. And when I say I did the 10,000-person study, I mean taking people's statements, literally what they say, not whether they raise their hands in response to a question. So this is not how I'm collecting data. It's just interesting for us experientially to see this. So that's one thing. So vastness of experience. How many people felt that time disappeared? Raise your hand really, really high. So that's like over half of us. Okay, these are some of the mysticism things and other questions we can ask. How many people felt this kind of combination of it was really empty and really full simultaneously? Raise your hand really high. Okay. Um, how many people felt a feeling of love? Okay, look at that, half of us. How many feel, felt a feeling of joy? Okay. How many people felt a feeling of God? If that's the way you experience things. Okay. How many feel, felt a feeling of being connected to something much larger than your body. Okay, take a look. Look around. Raise your hand really high. Okay. The vast majority of us. Okay? So you can then ask the question, what in the world is going on there? Like this is what Shauna, the person who's coordinating these two things, she, she came up to me after it because she's at all these things I do, at least excellent. But here, these results are the same as the results everywhere. So you can say, how can, even if you're a reluctant participant, like that Microsoft guy, it's not like, because some people say, oh, Dan is hypnotizing everyone. He's saying, you are going to feel all these things. No, I mean, did I ever, did I make that suggestion? You're going to feel timelessness, expansive, God, you know, right? I didn't say that, did I? But I might have, you don't know. <laughs> um, so what is going on? So what I'm going to do is say to you that from the 10,000 person study, it has been startling how these are the findings. That in a 30-minute practice, with people who've never meditated or literally who run monasteries, you get the same experience. I mean, not everyone's the same, but I mean, you see these universal patterns. So, so as a scientist, you know, I systematically collected the data on 10,000 people who did the study. I did it, and were any of you the psychotherapy networker? Uh, not networker, the Evolution Psychotherapy Conference. You know, were you in the room when I did it? Yeah, okay, so you know. We had 3,000 people in a room who did the practice. I asked some of these questions, and it was about maybe a third to a half, right? So literally a 1,000 people would raise their hand, and I'm not using that as the data collection. 
But it, wasn't that amazing? You know, 3,000 people in a room doing the wheel, many of whom never meditate. So you can say, what in the world is happening there? And then we'll talk about what might be going on and then what we can do about it because it's a really interesting uh, moment of science of understanding. Okay. So basically with this wheel, what we're going to do now is do a blast on the idea of what do we know about awareness itself? You know, the findings in the 10,000-person study are with the first segment of the rim, people see more clearly, they hear more details. All of the first five senses just have a quality that when you differentiate them, they become crisper. I mean, that's useful if you're going to have a meal. Just stop talking and really focus on the taste of the meal. That's, I mean, that's, I think you know about all that stuff. That's really interesting. And when you go over to the interior sensations of the body, you know, just the thing to know about, if something gets chaotic or rigid, it's something to work on. It could be an accident you had, like my horse accident. One time I was, you know, watching Seabiscuit, and, you know, the guy has the same thing happen to him, and, and I had all this unresolved trauma in my body. I had to go back to my therapist, you know, because I had some unresolved trauma stuff, do some trauma work on that. So if stuff comes up in your body, it's just an invitation Oh, good, I can now do some work on that. It's my growth edge. It's not a big deal. There's always healing to happen. Um, and then with the third segment, and so, so people start feeling their body and different parts of the body have different meaning depending on your history. And those are focused attention. Then the open awareness of the third segment, one of the moms who was watching me teach her adolescent son how to do the wheel in the brainstorm book we teach, well, in a whole brain child, we teach kids how to do this, is you get... Um, this incredible experience of people uh, feeling this, and the way this mom said it is probably the best way I can say it. She goes, you have completely turned my whole life upside down after this session. I go, what do you mean? She goes, you, you taught my son that the hub is different from the rim. I go, yeah. Knowing is different from the knowns. She goes, I never knew I wasn't my thinking. I go, well, say, you know, because I'm a therapist, you go, say more about that. You know, and uh, I think her son went to the restroom or something at that moment. She goes, this has completely blown my mind way open, which is exactly what she was doing. She was differentiating knowing from knowns. I'll give you a little example. You know, we teach this in the Whole Brain Child book I wrote with my student, Tina Payne Bryson, and we teach teachers how to teach the wheel as a drawing for kindergarten kids or any, any age kid. So Mrs. Smith is a kindergarten kid, a kindergarten teacher. She says Billy gets transferred from one school to her school because he beat up a kid on the yard. And now he's at her school. She teaches all her kids in kindergarten the wheel as a drawing um, using the whole brain child book. And then she says, she wrote me an email and says, on the second day after he learned the wheel on the first day, Billy comes to her and said, Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Smith, you've got to give me a break because I'm on the yard and Joey took my blocks and I'm about to hit him. And I am lost on my rim. I got to get back to my hub. <laughs> Five years old. Five, so I wrote to her. I said, this is awesome. You know, Kibi posted as he does. He gets totally woven into the social fabric of the school because he learned to create a pause between impulse and action. You know, we always want to honor Viktor Frankl for 
saying between stimulus and responses to space. Unfortunately, as far as anyone can tell, Viktor Frankl did not ever say that. Um, I actually reached out to his grandson who made a documentary about him because I wrote quoting Viktor Frankl in the book Mind, and my copy editor said, show me where Viktor Frankl wrote that. And it's all over the Internet. So I sent her to the Internet. She goes, you're a writer. You don't just quote the Internet. Show me the reference. <laughs> so I couldn't find it. So luckily, as time would have it, I was giving a workshop somewhere where somewhere I was actually reading Viktor Frankl's book. It's not in that book, but I was reading it. Uh, you know, Man's Search for Media. And um, someone said, oh, you like that book? I said, yeah, cool. She goes, oh, I'm friends with his grandson. I made a movie about him. Do you want to meet him? So I had taken uh, Alex Vesely out to lunch. So I then called up Alex. I said, Alex, you know, it was great to see you last week, but I have a copy editor problem. Give me the page number and the the document where your grandpa said that. There's silence on the phone. I go, oh, no, he didn't say it. He goes, no, he never said it. So I always have to correct people when they're asking me to blur books when I've read that quote. When I, so, so anyway, it's so sad. There's a bunch of quotes. You know, my favorite quote of all time is, be the change you want to see. He didn't say that. He, Gandhi never said that. Somebody said it. So it's a human being probably that wrote it out. But even if it was a monkey, that'd be okay. But Gandhi never said that. No one can find anywhere where he said that. He said something kind of close, like it was something like, um, the propaganda you try to spread should reflect the way you think living life should be lived, or something like that. It, it was something like that. And someone just tightened it all up. So it's not like it... <laughs> anyway, there's also an Einstein quote everybody quotes that he never said. Um, so in, <laughs> it was something like, everything that counts... Everything that can be counted does not count. Everything that can be counted doesn't necessarily count or something like that. Uh, you know, he never said it, apparently. Because someone showed it was someone way before Einstein was ever born that said it. Anyway, whatever. Probably lots of people say it. It doesn't matter. Humanity said it. The only reason I say that is because Billy learned the pause between impulse and action. And that's a cool thing. Whoever said that thing. It's cool. And it's everything. It's everything. So we need to ask the question of what's going on. So we're going to now go on a journey to say that um, if you're going to ask the question about the hub, because the rim you can make a statement based on what we said earlier is that those are all energy patterns. Sound, light, smell, taste, touch. They're all energy patterns. The sensations in your body, energy patterns. Even a thought, you could say, is some kind of configuration of constructed energy patterns, let's say, from your head brain. Fine, whatever. Emotion includes your body. Fine. Those are all energy patterns. That's easy, actually. The question of the fourth segment of the rim that was asked before about what do we really feel when we feel our interconnection, that's not so easy. You know, is there really a connection you're feeling, or are you just making it up because you know a person's there? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. We're actually studying that. If you're, any of you are interested in education, we're having a huge um, moment in, uh, in, our, in the work of, for us as humanity. We're going to gather anyone interested in creating what are called generative social fields in schools to come to this meeting at the Garrison Institute, October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, because uh, I'm working with a, a number of people, Peter Sange and Otto Scharmer and Richie Davidson, and we're trying to bring together a consortium of people to start a field looking at just what your question was. What are our interconnections? Why is it you can go into one classroom, 
literally and feel the deep respect and compassion and the encouragement of creativity and curiosity. We call that a generative social field. We don't know how the teacher creates it. We've actually grabbed seven of those teachers and said, what are you doing? And they go, I have no idea. Because everyone can feel it in that classroom. You go in another classroom and you feel that stuff is not there. It's just not there. So, you know, we have a film crew going to each of the seven we've picked out. We're going to bring them into the Garrison Institute. And we're going to try to tease it apart scientifically. But then even more than the science of it, which is one arm of what we're doing, we're going to say, how do you figure out what it is so you can teach teachers to create it? Because kids in that interconnected, supportive, I would say, my proposal to the group is it's an integrated classroom. The inner experience of a child is being respected. This is my theory about it. Um, and you feel that in the room. And, I mean, why wouldn't you? You are, you are an energy antenna, really. So, and this is to get to your question about how, what are you really feeling. I do think there are patterns of energy that you can feel. You know, everyone's nodding, so you, you kind of know what I mean. I think that's probably what it is. And you can see resonating kinds of energy fields. You can. Michael Faraday, uh, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, you know, he came up with the idea of electromagnetic fields. People thought he was insane because you couldn't see him. He said, no, 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 there's fields. Oh, no, crazy, crazy. You can't see them, so they're not real. Well, now all of your electronics are based on electromagnetic fields. But, you, but with your body, you can't see electromagnetic fields. With your eyes, you can't feel them with your fingers. You can't smell them. You can't taste them. You can't hear them. But they're absolutely real. So there may be a kind of sense you have in your body that you can actually feel energy fields. So when I was in medical school, there was kind of a rogue group of us, um, and we brought in a person from Japan who taught us to do acupressure where you don't touch the body. And we learned to use this part of our hands to actually feel energy fields. Maybe it was temperature. I don't know. It felt like density of something. And we, we learned how to move energy around a body without ever touching the person's body. And my teacher used me as an example. I stopped behind him and he just went like this without touching me. He threw me across the room. He threw me across the room. And I learned from that way that I literally pounded into the wall that uh, these energy fields that we think, oh, it sounds California. This was happening at Harvard, so it was Boston. But um, (laughs) although he was from Japan and we were this rogue hippie group, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, so to deny that that's real. In fact, with John O'Donohue, O'Donohue, you know, John would call himself a mystic. And I'd say, what in the world's a mystic? Because I've never used that term in my life. He goes, someone who believes in the reality of the invisible. I said, oh, my God, sign me up. Because if you're, and as Einstein said, what's the quote about Einstein and mysticism? There are only two ways to live, as if everything's mystical or nothing's mystical, or something like that. But the idea is that For us to think we can perceive everything with our usual five senses that's real is complete ignorance. So to be truly scientific, you got to be realized, this gets back, I keep on coming back to your question, there's probably an interconnectivity that can be felt both as waves of energy that you can feel with your fingers, and as we'll see soon, there's another way that we feel energy to. And we'll talk about that soon. Okay. So now we come to the hub. 
Because basically what we're saying is the rim is a bunch of energy patterns. Okay? The knowns are energy patterns. So it fits with our energy thing. Now we come to the hub. What in the world is knowing? So what I'm going to do is take you on a journey that's pretty wild. So please put on your seatbelts. Because this is pretty twisty and wild. And, and I want to see if there are any questions at this moment. Because what we're about to do takes us to a different space. Any, any questions now? Okay. So let's go on this journey. And if, if at any moment you have a clarifying question. And is there a way for us to get questions from people in the virtual land? Can they type in questions to you or no? Okay. So write in questions to me if you have questions at info at drdansegel.com. But here, here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to go really slowly because if this framework is built up in a way that every step makes sense, it takes you to a space of understanding and experiencing. And you can check it out with Tija if I'm making this up. But when you grok what we're about to do, it changes you. Would you agree with that, Tisha? And uh, it was such an honor, I got to say, to spend a week with Tisha, who's you know, the, the Qigong master of all Qigong masters, to actually combine what we're about to do with the beautiful work that Tisha does, what Qigong brings into your experience, and then what sitting meditation, all these things kind of brings it together and the idea of you know, a spiritual omnivore. You know, what we're about to talk about fits with Catholicism, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Islamic faith. It fits with um, mysticism. It fits with various meditative practices. People will hand me books and say, my master taught me this, it's just what you're teaching, and this and that, and it's beautiful. It's what E.O. Wilson would call consilience, and yet it comes 100% from science and scientific reasoning. You know, so when Jack and I teach together, it's hilarious because I'll just say things straight from science because I don't have any spiritual teachings background except from hanging out with Jack. Um, and I'll say things, and then he'll say, well, here's you know, how this fits with Buddhism, which is great. But if it didn't fit with Buddhism, that's great too. Um, but it happens to fit with it. So it's a really interesting, consilient approach that does not come from any spiritual tradition at all. It comes from scientific reasoning. Okay, so let me go through these scientific reasoning points. The first statement that we spend the morning with was the really weird proposal that MIND, mind, and its four facets, subjective experience, consciousness, information processing, and even self-organization, all four facets might, underscore might, but that's our standing starting place, be emergent phenomena of energy flow. Right? That's just summarizing the whole morning. Everybody with me on that? Okay. It's a weird thing to say. Nobody says it. My interns look for other like-minded people. Nobody talks like that. It makes me, because I have a very doubting mind and I had a very difficult childhood. So believe me, all the doubts in my mind that ask questions like, what's going on? What's that? Why aren't I doing that? You know, even my friends know I have a hard time even ordering food for dinner. They say, how could you ever write a book or stand up on stage? So, I mean, I have a big doubting mind. So if you're doubting what I'm saying, you can be sure I'm doubting what I'm saying, too, at the same time. But the science is really fascinating about it. So the first thing to say is the mind and its four facets might be an emergent property of energy flow. Okay? Emergence 
is a scientific concept. We're not like getting fuzzy and fudgy about, oh, it's an emergent property, which is how you get mocked by some academics. So you have to remind them emergence is a mathematical property of complex systems. It's not fuzzy at all. Even though it has a fuzzy feeling to it, for sure. So that's number one. So then you could say, okay, well then, let's back up a second. Okay, mind might be an emergent property of energy, fine. The next question to ask is, what is energy? You can say, well, you said energy. Energy is light, it's sound, all that stuff, and that's all true, but those are examples of energy. What is energy itself? So for whatever reason, I got invited to go to a, a, a week-long meeting on spirituality and science with 150 physicists and me. It was the weirdest thing. And I, and I even wrote to them. I said, I don't know a thing about spirituality. And they go, well, come anyway. It'll be fine. So I came. And um, in, during that week, I did nothing but ask these physicists, what is energy and what is time? And luckily, I had the energy and the time to do that. <laughs> and they must have thought I was a nudnik, you know, because I was like one of the only non-physicists there. So ultimately, here's what they said about the energy question. Energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. I hear all your, mm, isn't that amazing? And I went, oh, what? They go, yeah, energy in all its different forms is basically the movement from possibility to actuality. So then I said, oh my gosh. Wow. And let's, let's look at how you might visualize this, graph it, because if we're saying mind is an emergent property of energy, the reason to do what we're about to do is that the natural question would be to say, okay, if it's an emergent property of energy, what in the world is energy? So now we're asking that question. Does that make sense? So like in the AWARE book, you'll see me basically say, here's what the brain studies show. Brain studies show consciousness, being aware, is associated with integration in the brain. You link differentiated parts. And I tried to honor all the different people doing whatever different things. But ultimately, it comes down to that one sentence. And even if you come down to that one sentence, it doesn't really tell you why would the subjective experience of knowing come from integration, but it seems to come from that. So neural integration and consciousness, are they go hand in hand. What we don't know, I'll have you know, is which creates what. So neuroscientists would say the brain is creating consciousness, but maybe consciousness is getting the brain to be integrated. We don't know. We actually don't know. So, okay, so that's the brain piece. Now we're going to get to the energy piece, which you don't see anyone talking about for some reason. So energy, for these physicists, is the movement from possibility to actuality. So let's walk through a visualization that my daughter, oh, all these pictures she did, but this one she really helped me do. So if we start with a graph where the axis going from the top at 100% down to the bottom, this vertical axis called the y-axis, is what's called a probability distribution curve. You see the highest probability is when you're at 
The lowest would be near zero, as we'll see. So let's do an example right now. I am thinking of a word, and let's say you and I share a million words together. Okay, we share a million words, and I'm thinking of one of those million words. What's the chance that you know which word I'm actually thinking about at this moment? One in a million. So you see up on the graph, let's see if this shows there, that it's one in a million, right? Let me see. Do you see the arrow when I move it around? Yeah. Oh, that just shakes it. Why is that shaking? It's energy. It's not me. Something's happening here. That's cool. Do you guys know what's happening there? It's the Wi-Fi connection, probably. Is that it? It's something we don't know. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Is there a way to correct that? Oh, I see. It's a projector. Okay, maybe it's all, it might be the energy in the room. Anyway, okay, I'm sorry about that. All right, so the idea is right now it's one out of a million, right? So at this moment, we're at the lowest point of probability, right? Now, we don't say zero because it's one out of a million. It's not quite zero. It's almost zero. So if, if you ever hear me say zero, you say zero, let's excuse each other. We really mean near zero. Okay, fine. Now I say the word... Redwood. Now, what's your chance of knowing? What, what's, your, what's the probability of you knowing what I said? One out of one. It's 100%. Now, if you were a fly on the wall making that thing shake, you would, you would be saying, I just saw energy flow. You went from possibility to actuality. The possible you thinking about the word, became the actual. You know the word is redwood. See how that worked? And you can see that there's a lowest point of probability, this near zero place, and there's the highest point of probability up there at the peak, right? So let's do another example. Let's say there were only words that began with a, uh, an R or something. Let's just say there are 10,000 of them. What's the chance of you knowing that word? One in 10,000. What about when I say the word railroad? Where are you at now? You've come up to the point B, right? So there's another example of energy flow. It went from a higher state of probability, one out of 10,000 is higher than one out of a million, and then you're fine. And let's say we do oceans, and let's say there are five oceans in the world, and what's your chance of knowing which of the five I'm going to say? One out of five, and there's that. That's how that looks. So you go from one out of five up to one. And a fly on the wall would say, oh, I'm watching energy flow. Energy flow is the movement of possible to actual. And the possible point can be either ultimate possibility, like the near zero thing, or it can be um, a higher state. Now, if you take the x-axis, the one going across left to right, and just make that clock time, you know, as our watches move on and you see energy flow across clock time. Um, and then you add one more axis, which is the z-axis, in and out of the plane of the, the screen up there. You then get diversity, how many things can be happening all at once. So you can have just a few, or you can have a chaotic, all, a lot of things happening all at once. But if you do map it out as a three-dimensional graph, then you realize the lowest point of probability is in the shape of a plane. Everyone see that? Now, this plane of possibility along this probability distribution graph 
has some very interesting characteristics. Um, in physics, this mathematical space of all possible entities that could become actualized has a formal name. And the formal name is the quantum vacuum. Arthur Zions, when I presented all this stuff to him, said he loved everything about the model I'm about to present to you, but he likes the phrase sea of potential, which is the quantum vacuum, which on this graph you can see because it's a graph of a plane, which is called the plane of possibility. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, if you started graphing out what energy flow really means, you get this graph, which is that when you move from possible to actual, you have this kind of cone that goes up from this huge plane of possibility upward to a peak. So those high points are called peaks. Or if your starting place is not from there, but you know one of the five oceans or something, then you're at a plateau. So we have three words that begin with a P. You've got the peak of actualization, you have a plateau of higher probability, and you have a plane of possibility. Everybody with me? So here's the proposal of what the mind is. I think the mind is an emergent property of energy as it moves from possibility to actuality. And then when you take the 10,000-person study reports, at least it fits with this proposal. It doesn't mean it's accurate, so it could be completely wrong. But if it's true, this is what might be the case. A thought or an emotion or a memory would be peaks. Just beneath the peak would be a process like thinking or emoting or remembering. And then when you go even further below the sub-peak value, you go to a plateau, which would be like a state of mind with an intention or attitude, mood. And from a given state of mind, if I'm in a really joyful state of mind, I might feel gratitude and excitement and awe and all these kinds of things that come from that place. Or I could be in a shame state of mind if I've been abused, for example, and only think I'm no good and I'm horrible and... and not be able to give myself um, a positive set of statements in that plateau, you see. So the plateau restricts which peaks can arise. And we can get into it a little later on, but in that way, a plateau serves as a consciousness filter, a filter of consciousness, shaping which potentialities get turned into actualities. Everybody with me? Now, you can see from this graph that there's a wild proposal here, which is best seen here, which is that the stuff on the rim are plateaus and peaks. The thoughts, feelings, memories you might be aware of are energy patterns that are moving their way toward actuality. But that if you reflect on the statements made around this planet, when people very rapidly can get into the hub itself or the space between mental activities would be like the hub. What I think is going on, and think about all the statements we shared here in this room, and this is the proposal, and again, it could be wrong, but it fits with the data, and that's just an interesting place to start. We're going to try to study it. 
but here's the proposal. That being aware emerges when the probability position has dropped into the plane of possibility. That the subjective experience of being aware arises when the probability position has moved into the plane of possibility. And there are several inferences of that proposal, which are really fascinating. Number one, impulses and actions are plateaus and peaks. And when you access the plane, that is equivalent to the hub, right? When Billy accesses his hub, what he's actually doing is dropping his energy position into the plane of possibility. And that gives a pause between the emergence of peaks. Does that make sense? So that's one amazing thing. It, this explains the pause. It doesn't explain why we have subjective experience of knowing. I don't know why. Some young person is going to have to try to figure that out if this is true. But it seems to be true. Number two, you have the experience of knowing arising from that. Number three, so you have a pause, you have knowing. Number three, the reason Billy can choose other options or let other options arise is that the plane of possibility is the mathematical space in which all other options rest. It is the formless source of all form. So when Billy says, I've got to get back to my hub, yes, he says, I want to pause, fine. Yes, I want to be aware of what's going on, fine. But from a, an energy point of view, all options rest in the plane of possibility. So when someone has been taught, like Mrs. Smith taught Billy, or you've learned here today, to drop into that hub, that's the metaphor. There's no hub. I mean, there's a hub in my office with the, with the table, but there's no hub anywhere. I think the, the metaphor of the wheel is the mechanism of this 3P graph. 3P graph meaning you've got um, peak, plateau, and plane. So that's what we're going to this is the free 3P framework. So when he drops into the plane of possibility, Billy is actually in the mathematical space. It's not a physical space. It's a mathematical space in which other options arise. That's the third implication. The fourth implication... Well, let's actually talk about the third for a moment. A little, let's stay with that third for a moment. Why in the world will we have around this planet as you saw in this room, many, many, many of us, even though this is the first time you may have done it, and I do the wheel every day, let me tell you, it is just an incredible, fun adventure to tap into that plane of possibility every day. I mean, you should, I mean, Tisha can tell you, you should see the way people transform when we just did the wheel the second time, right? I mean, so, so great to have Tisha here because you think, oh, Dan's like, just, I mean, well, we can talk about it. Maybe, maybe I'll have you... Would you come up here, Tisha, in a, in a bit? Okay. Because Actually, come on up here. Come on up here. Let's just share. Because this, this, these implications are exactly what... You all know Tisha Bell? Almost one up. Let's hear It's so great. And we've now taught together a few times, and uh, it's a love affair. On, I'll say on my side. <laughs> hey, Tisha. 
let's get you a microphone because this will be fun to do this together. And you're, you're okay doing this, right? Yes. Okay. Do, do we have one of those mics from somewhere? Here it comes. Um, so what I just want to talk about is, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, and let me just do an ethical question for you a moment. As long as I don't mention names, it should be fine to talk about our confidential thing, right? As long as I don't say a person's name. I think so, yeah. You're okay with that? Good. Yeah, okay. So I'll give you an example, two examples um, um, that happened. Uh, I'll do maybe the light one first and the heavy one next. Maybe that's a good way to do it. So on, on one, one time, and you jump in, but you, so everyone, um, someone uh, will just, someone says, um, I'm terrified to be done with this conference because I have incredible social phobia and, you know, I felt some kind of relief a little bit here, but I'm going to go back and I know I'm just going to have all this panic about being with people and I have children. I don't know what to do. And I just, I'm just really, really anxious. And so I said to her, this is in front of the whole group, 150 people, I said, so what was it like when you, you, know, when you went into the hub? She goes, oh my God, I was so peaceful. And so, you know, but, but I'm so anxious. But I, I said, well, your anxiety is a plateau. And that the peaks that arise from that particular plateau, whether it's your temperament or trauma you've had or whatever, have continually reinforced themselves. And we had already talked about earlier how when you learn to drop out of a plateau, you have the challenge that that plateau gets you lost in familiar places. And to drop out of the plateau means going deeply into uncertainty, which is the exact thing making the person anxious. So you can see the self-imprisoning recursive property of the plateau actually imprisoning her in this belief that she will be anxious and socially phobic her entire life. So what I said to her was, when you realize that uncertainty is a synonym for possibility that emerges from the plane of possibility, the plateau that's keeping you trying to protect you and keeping you from dropping into the spaciousness of the plane is always available to you. As wisdom traditions always taught, what you need, you already have. And then, Tisha, you can say how she was after that intervention. And you know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. So, so this is now, so you know, I'm not making this up. So this is great. This is great. We did not rehearse this. That's right. We didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, the experience of this person, then, um, the the transformation of of awareness. It's kind of like it moves. It moved below um, the waves of just the thought and the concepts. And um, I was feeling like below those waves of of conception of of that activity was a deep sense of connection and interconnection that you can't make up. You can't think your way into it. But it is, there is a way of knowing it. And there is a way of directly connecting with it. And this is 
what um, the practice actually opened up into. So it was, it's, it's amazingly beautiful to watch and to experience how um, just this practice of the wheel of awareness opens into this incredible potential of direct knowing. So we have the way of knowing that is the way of using our minds. And this is an important and essential uh, aspect of our human lives. But there is also this wonderful way, which my, my friends and my students also know, of dropping down below that and directly connecting with knowing itself. And the, the quality of this is healing. Yeah. Is a sense of wholeness. Is a sense... Uh, there's no ambiguity in there. The, the direct knowing is inclusive. It's not really open to delusional knowing or a kind of wondering about. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so she, she gets this shift in the whole way her body is. And, this, and she says something like this. I'll paraphrase. After this kind of this way, we're all, all as a group talking about it. She goes... Um, and I wish I could just literally quote her, but it goes something like this. It goes, she goes, with this glowing face, she goes, I am so thankful that I could drop into this, this place where I have all of you in me and I know from the plane that I'm going to go out and instead of being frightened of people and instead of being frightened of my own children, I'm going to live from this space that I never knew I had in me. And she was just like describing this thing. And this is a person who was like all tight and protected and all you could feel her among the group, you know, and interacting in the different settings. And now she was just like, I mean, I don't know how to describe it, but it was just like, like this. Because then this is a fifth implication of the plane of possibility is that your plane, my plane, your plane, your plane, all of our planes are the same. Infinity is infinity. And so people find each other when they can access the plane. Right? So it was just amazing to see her transform. And a few days earlier, we had another experience. I'll do that one. And this was like... This is one. Yeah, this ahead. was the. This was the. Actually, this is the first time. The first. We did, the first time that we did the wheel of awareness. Yeah, and just it, that week. Yeah, a little. A little context. Yep. To, to this, so that you know, many of you are experienced meditators or have practiced integrative practices like qigong and, and yoga and so on. There were a lot of people uh, at this event um, that didn't have that kind of background, so that came in just uh, out of their pure interest. So no previous contemplative practice or meditative practice or embodiment practice. And this was one of those um, yeah. individuals. So a newbie, but you know, a sincere and deep heart and really connected with um, what we were um, presenting. Yeah, and because this is completely confidential because we're not saying what it is, and, or, so we'll, we'll, this is so... It, it became this incredible teaching moment for all of us. Um, and also it raises, you know, a, a very important thing, like are there negative side effects to doing any contemplative practice? It just should be whenever you're doing something powerful, you should talk about what are the potential downsides. And this, I think, is a good example of a teaching thing. It'll be fun to teach this together. So here's how it goes. And please interrupt and change if I'm not remembering correctly. But... Um, so we did the wheel for the first time that week. This is, 
before they had any of this plane of possibility discussion. Zero. So they do the, the wheel of awareness. And um, so this person, she, take, she takes the microphone and she sounds absolutely terrified. And with a shaking voice, she says, I've died. And I don't know what to do. I've died. 150 people. I'm, this is where I'm just teaching by myself. So what would you do if you were a teacher? So tell me more, exactly. And you want to say... <laughs> what? That's good. What does it feel like to be dead? Right? So I asked her, what does it feel like to be dead? Now, why did I ask her that? Because obviously she's alive. But she's having the experience. She's having the word. Let's keep in mind what this is all about, right? You know, you live in a body, and the body converts energy flow patterns into categories and concepts that then it languages, right? So she's now popping out with the language symbol of energy flow patterns that she's equated with dead. Obviously, she's not been dead. Well, I shouldn't say obviously because we talked about past lives and stuff. But anyway, there's, um, you know, let's just go with the idea that we live one life. So, so I said to her, what, is, what does it feel like to be dead? So then she says the most amazing thing. She says, I'm, I'm in pieces and I'm at peace. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I said, well, so tell us more about that, right? So, but this is the idea of staying with the person. It's about the attunement, right? So the first thing about that, in case you're ever teaching this kind of stuff, is attunement allows a person who's isolated to then be joined. So instead of even alone in their suffering, they're now connected as a we. So I said, tell us more about this, right? Say more about that. So be aware, tell us what it feels like in your body to be dead. What does it feel like to be in pieces? And did you say in pieces and at peace? She goes, yes, I said those two things. So she goes through this whole process of becoming aware of her body, of feeling all these things, of going through, you know, we went through the senses, we went through the body, just kind of reviewing the wheel. And as we just integrate even with the wheel, mental activities and stuff, she felt fine enough. And I said to her, you know, are you at a place we can stop for now? And then we're going to review something, which was what we we're just reviewing. And let's see if we can understand how you can both be in pieces and at peace at the same time. She said, yes, I'm, I'm okay to stop right now. And she was like, had been shaking. Now she was calmer. Then we go through this discussion we're going with you now. And you can say what happened to you if you want. Yeah, I think this was one of those um, uh, beautiful experiences of... Um, the self, the person that we've known ourselves to be, all of a sudden is no longer there in direct experience. So you don't have any uh, reference uh, about you know who you are. So you are all of a sudden in this new domain. It's, um, it's very similar to your, uh, your experience and similar to other experiences. It's sometimes called the dark night of the soul, or sometimes it's a stream entry. It's moving into a field, uh, a new presence of awareness that um, you're, the only map that you have, the only way, the only structure of understanding is some old structure. You're already in a new 
in a new land of um, of experience, but you have no way to describe it. So describing yourself as being dead or or in pieces that's not that would not be uncommon. But uh, Dan continued to uh, help her realize that this was just a way of um, of expressing that, and that her actual somatic experience was a little bit different than that, that she was able to connect with the fear that was out of her mind was not necessarily present in her body. So that was an important yeah. uh, part of that, yeah. that experience. Exactly. And so we went through this discussion that we're all going through right now. And... It was getting toward the end of that particular session, so I turned to her, brought her back by name into the room, um, and I said, we want to check out how you're doing. And she has this huge smile on her face, this kind of glow beaming out of her everything, her, her whole beingness, and she goes, my smile says everything. And Everybody was tracking her for the next few days, and she just became more and more this glowing light. And I, I, I don't know how you describe because we were always... And, and it became this... In a way, it became the center point for everyone. Uh, her courage to say, I've died. The willingness for everyone to see plateaus and their particular peaks are our constructed sense of self. Yeah. Broadly, it can be a separate self, or it could be, oh, I'm dumb, or I'm smart, or I'm an I'm a abuse victim, or I'm a this, or I'm a that race, or this gender, or that, you know, um, you know religion, or whatever. And, you know, there was a, a person who, who was in the middle of a transgender um, shift, and um, they came to me and they said, you know, this has been so profoundly helpful to realize that I have these plateaus, they said, you know, that would tell me from a socially constructed view that I'm male or female. And those are plateaus. But when I've now learned with the wheel to drop into the hub, the plane, I realized this is an incredible sense of peace, which is what the, the second person we talked about, that's what she meant when she said, I'm at peace. She was dropping into the plane of possibility, which is incredibly peaceful, but we have plateaus above it which give us panic attacks, fear, make statements like, I've died. Because here's the issue. We get certainty with plateaus. But when you drop into the plane of possibility and you let stuff happen, right? You go. Yes. You're all, all of a sudden in this plane of, uh, of uncertainty. So uh, in the Zen traditions, you know, you hear all of this like, don't know mind, right? Only don't know. Well, that's not talking about your cognitive sense. It's talking about the direct knowing sense. So by not presencing inside those, those, uh, the, the previous map of your knowing, you're opening into new, uh, new, new possibilities, new potentials of direct knowing. And that direct knowing is this beautiful plane of, of possibility um, uh, called, you know, the, some of the Buddhists in the Mahayana tradition call this what? Emptiness. Emptiness, right? And the teaching is uh, emptiness 
is form and form is emptiness and emptiness is no different than form and form is no different than emptiness. This is about the essential paradox that we have in language in the maps but the knowing is so beautifully accessible. It's right here. It has always been right here. And um, uh, the, the wheel of awareness is one of these great uh, skills that allow us this direct connection with both um, the map and the territory. So the map is not the territory, but it leads us into the territory. And that's, the, that's this domain of direct knowing yeah. that we're both um, talking about. Yeah, exactly. And that's so beautiful, you know, when you hear um, uh, spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions, you know, tap into this. It was always the thing that like, puzzled me so much because the plane of possibility is empty of form and full of potentiality. And it, it, it's, I mean, literally in terms of trying to see a, a scientific view of why if you do 10,000 people doing the wheel of awareness, get their reports, and you, know, you saw in this room, people say it was empty and full. What could be empty and full? The plane of possibility is empty and full. Okay? And let's now go to a, a, a different thing. Are you okay staying up here? Sure. I love being here with you. But we, we should do this some more. Yes. <laughs> so good to be with you. Um, so, so we have five implications so far of the plane of possibility. Right? Let's review them. What was the first one? What's that? A pause. So it's the pause between impulse and action. The, the sense of knowing, the subjective experience of being aware. What was the third one? All these possibilities rest there, so you have other choices. The fourth one was? You can, you can be with this deep level of uncertainty. I don't know if that was it. The a fifth one was... That's where we're all interconnected, right? It's where interconnection comes from. But a sixth one is the notion that, and I'm going to give you this kind of the scientific frame on this that you'll think I'm just like making stuff up, but um, I'm not. If it was on the cover of Scientific American in July 2018, it's probably some kind of conservative scientific view. But the bottom line is, there are two realms of reality. There are two realms of reality. And let me just ask our tech people, if I show a video on this uh, computer, will it have the sound? No? Or, we, we can work that out maybe after the break, we'll do it. Because I have a fun video to show about this thing. Uh, so maybe we'll work it out after the break. So here's just what I'll say, and then we'll take a break in a moment. Um, there are two what are called realms of reality or levels of reality of our one reality. And this is going to sound so weird that you're going to think it's just goofball talk. And I just want to honor that feeling you're having. I think it's weird. Everyone thinks it's weird. And no one can... This is what the cover of the Scientific American was all about, is that an article about the, the weirdness of this. Okay, but here's how it goes. You have um, a set of laws that Sir Isaac Newton, 350 years ago, figured out about large objects like planets or like your body or like a bicycle or a car or something like that. These large objects 
have certain laws about force and action and gravity and things like that that Sir Isaac Newton figured out. Brilliant. Because he was able to figure it out, it's called Newtonian physics, otherwise known as classical physics. So when you talk about energy in the classical Newtonian realm, you're talking about things that have certainty. So for example, if you get in your car and you drive your car and you see a red light and your foot presses on the brake, that car is going to stop. It's a certainty because of all the laws of Newtonian physics We know that a mechanic can build a car. My father was a mechanical engineer. He used to build cars and helicopters. You follow those laws of Newton, and that car is going to stop. Okay? So Newtonian laws are absolutely important. They're real. You know, fine. Here's what was discovered 100 years ago. So classical physics 350 years ago, Sir Isaac Newton... 100 years ago, what began to be discovered was the level of an electron, or smaller. So we call that a microstate, or a quanta, a unit of an energy field called an electron, or a photon. It turns out that Sir Isaac Newton's laws do not apply whatsoever to electrons, or photons, or quanta. So it's called quanta physics or quantum physics. Now, the laws of quantum physics have predicted empirical results to the trillionth power. That many of our electronics are based on quantum mechanics. So it's not some weird, obscure, you know, controversial thing. No, it's, it's actually one of the most rigorous scientific frameworks that exist quantum physics. There are aspects of it too that are really controversial that I'll mention in a moment. There are four aspects of the quantum realm is what's sometimes used, or level of reality called microstate reality that are worth just noting in terms of your experience of the wheel of awareness. Number one, in the quantum realm, everything is about probabilities not certainties. Now, let's talk about your mind. How many of you feel like your mind, the way it acts, is a certainty? You know exactly how your mind's going to act. Raise your hand. Right. So it raises the question that maybe your mind has quantum properties. Well, if our proposal from the morning is correct, the mind is an emergent property of energy, you might more readily look to quantum issues rather than Newtonian, wouldn't you? But you live in a big body, so we think in quantum, in in Newtonian terms, but maybe that's inappropriate. So that's number one. The idea that there's probabilities in the quantum microstate world, certainties in the Newtonian classical world. That's just interesting. Number two. This is the hugely controversial point. Do you remember in high school physics the double slit experiment? Anyone remember that? You take a sheet of metal, put two slits in it, you shoot an electron through it, one at a time, electron, 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 and you have a photographic paper on the other side of where you're shooting it, and the thing goes through as a wave. 
goes through as a wave. And you can tell because the wave, depending on where it is, will go through this double slit in a certain way and will get interference patterns on the backside. Don't worry about that. But there's a way of knowing it went through as a wave. Fine. You put a camera in front of that metal so you're going to observe the electron going through and it goes through like a little pellet. The, the huge distribution of probability values gets collapsed into a single value called a particle. And the thing goes through like a little bullet. Because, well, this is the controversy. Because you turned a camera on. You turn the camera off, it goes through as a wave. You turn the camera on, it goes through as a particle. Now, that's not controversial, the fact that that happens. That freaks everybody out. Einstein, no, no, that's a different thing about Einstein. That's just weird. So what some quantum physicists, not all, this is the, con- so this, that's not controversial what I just said. Here's the controversial part. What does that mean? So in Copenhagen, a bunch of quantum physicists got together. They had a debate. And one outcome of that Copenhagen debate is called the orthodox Copenhagen interpretation. Not everybody subscribes to it. So it's controversial, for sure. You've got to name it as controversial. That view says that consciousness, which involves the act of observation, is fundamental to the universe. Other physicists say that's the stupidest bunch of malarkey they've ever heard. So you get intense fighting among quantum physicists, the ones who subscribe to the orthodox interpretation. And, I, and Tija actually showed me a book where the person did not acknowledge the controversy and said, quantum physics has established that consciousness creates reality. And that's completely not what quantum physics has stated. At the most extreme, you could say, consciousness somehow alters a probability state. It didn't create the electron. So you see wacky things said in the name of quantum physics. So when I put quantum physics in this book, believe me, I was very worried. I still am worried because the book isn't out yet. You know, because... And I try to stay, you know, I consult with quantum physicists. Arthur Zients is a quantum physicist. So, you know, I try to stay super conservative. And when there's controversy, I state it because quantum physics is not controversial. This part of it is way overinterpreted as consciousness creates reality. So one time I was on stage with someone who said that. And I said, that is awesome. I am so much in the mood for a bougainvillea right here between us. Please create it. <laughs> and if you think about it, if there are 150 of us in this room, what did we create? This beautiful auditorium? What do you call this place? The sanctuary at Spirit Rock? Meditational. Did we all create it with consensual consciousness? I mean, come on. But, well, kind of in terms of let's, let's, let's generate the money and build it. Right. But in term, that's true. But in terms of, anyway, so you will see, you will see people saying things in the name of quantum that are, as far as I can tell, is a conservative interpretation of the science, absolutely wrong. And they say it with utter conviction. And they get people to blurb their books with utter conviction. Like, this is the best thing in the world. And it's like, oh my God. So if you just stick with the conservative thing, the issue is maybe observation bends a probability value. Now, if that's true, maybe, let's just say even if that's true, not that it creates reality, but then maybe that's how consciousness allows these people we're talking to you about to actually alter the unfolding of energy patterns called their life and their identity, right? It's not that they're making their body happen. It's just they're bending these microstates. So that's, that's the um, 
Second thing, the possibility that observation influences probability states. We're going to state it very conservatively like that. Now, here's point number three and four, and then we'll take a break. In, in the microstate level of quantum realm physics, there is no arrow of time. Many physicists believe there's nothing like a flowing thing called time, but there is something called an arrow of time, which is a directionality of change. So if we're in a kitchen and cracking open an egg, you can't uncrack the egg. That's called an arrow of time, and there's a whole science behind it that has to do with entropy and stuff like that. But those issues about entropy and the arrow of time only exist in macrostates at the Newtonian level. There's only an arrow of time at the macrostate level. When I read this, I went, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. Because in the 10,000 person study, one of the most common things that was stated was, bless you, time disappeared. The plane of possibility, I'm going to suggest to you, is quantum. The plane of possibility is timeless. It's arrow free. Now you may go, hold on, how can you say it's arrow free? Well, let me put it this way. Quantum states are arrow-free. That's established. What I'm just saying to you is that I think the plane of possibility as the sea of potential, as the quantum vacuum, by definition, it's a quantum state. So if you can drop your mind into the plane of possibility, you get this timelessness. So I do this every morning. I do the hub, flipping the hub around. I get to this timeless state. I've got to make sure the timer is on. Or, like, I could be there, like, a long time. Even if it's just a minute, it's, like, a long time. Because it's eternity, right? So that's point number three. And that explains, right? You see how it fits with the subjective data? I don't know. Is there anything in the, in the wisdom traditions you want to say about the time part? Or even, even the second one, about the act of consciousness influencing states? Well, certainly in, uh, in all the contemplative traditions, there... Um as we move into deeper and deeper states, the, the qualities that, uh, the, on that mysticism sc- st- scale of um, timelessness, of vastness, of uh, clarity, all those um, uh, beautiful uh, qualities take place. So um, I think one of the, the things that's really amazing as we hear this, as we um, hear this in your perspective, Dan, and uh, and from others, from the wisdom traditions too, is what develops out of this are understanding some of the implications of this. So it's not just following the cognitive line, although the cognitive line is very important, but it also gives us a sense of um, uh, tolerance, a sense of tolerance for the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. The uh, tolerance for stillness, uh, and and with that, we f- we find that uh, um, awareness moves both to and from this plane of possibility. Mm-hmm. So, um, if anything, uh, in our in our practice, having that sense of uh, the the peace that comes out of. Uh, just tolerance of, uh, of stillness and uncertainty. It's a beautiful place to, to learn how to rest in and from. Beautiful. Excellent. And let's just do the last piece because I know we need a bio break. Um, so we have, you know, uh, 
uncertainty rather than certainty. We have the act of observation may play a role in altering those probability states. We have arrow-free existence at the quantum level. And so what I want to suggest to you is that the plane of possibility, the knowing of the hub, is timeless. But the rim, you know, your plateaus and peaks, are arrow-bound. They have a directionality to them. So those are more like macro states of energy configurations, whereas there's a lot of reason to think that the plane is this huge um, microstate. Why is it a microstate? It's where you have all potential things resting before they become actualized. So in some, ca- in some way you can think about this. This may be a little you know, pushing the reasoning, but the most integrated state you can have is being in the plane of possibility. Everything that could be is there and all there in the same mathematical space. So that fits with the integrated information theory of the origin of consciousness from all the brain scientists. So with some of the scientists I'm working with, we're going to see if we can do that correlation of this massive integration. Now, what's I guess just to stay with that for a moment before we get to number four, the neural correlates of awareness are integration in the brain. The neural correlates of love, non-referential compassion, are integration in the brain. The brain states that seem to correlate with, I'm not saying causal, but correlate with love and awareness are the same. I think this massive integration is what love is. And this is why you see people feel, like I'll just give you one example. I was asked to go to another country and work with the parliament. And um, so I had all the parliamentarians there and we did the wheel of awareness. And we, you know, people shared with the microphone like all, you all did. One very vocal parliamentarian didn't say a thing. We took a break to have our tea and biscuits and whatever like that. And um, so he comes to me in the corner. He says, can I talk to you? I said, sure. And he goes, um, you know, I, I did the wheel and everything. I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, but I didn't say anything in the discussion period. I said, I noticed. He goes, do you want to know why I didn't say anything? I said, yeah, I, I, I'd, like, I'd love to know why you didn't say anything. And then he gets really quiet and gets some, his eyes fill up with water. He goes, never in before, never before in my life did I feel so much love before in my life. When I bent that spoke around, he said, I just felt so connected to everyone and so in love with everyone. And he's like, teary now. There's a silence between us. So I said, so you, you felt so much love. He goes, so much love. I said, but you didn't want to share that? He goes, oh no, no. (laughs) I said, why not? He goes, oh, if I were to say that, they'd think I was weak. So there's a silence between the two of us. And I go, um, okay, so you didn't want to look weak? He goes, oh, no, in front of your colleagues. He goes, no. I said, so you didn't say anything? He goes, no, I wasn't going to say anything. I said, so let me ask you a question. He goes, what's that? And I said, when you're making your public policy, do you leave love out of your processing? And his eyes get really, really big. His finger starts wagging at me, and then he runs over to his parliamentarians, but I don't know what he said. Um, 
But this is the idea that this spaciousness, right, this feeling, and then this gets to number four, and then we'll take a break. Um, this is going to sound weird, but in 2015, November 2015, the final study was done to prove that this is no longer a proposal, but it's a proven outcome of our reality. And I know you're going to think this is weird. You're going to ask, why did Spirit Rock let Dan come here and all this stuff? But entanglement is a proven aspect. It's probably a part of macrostates too, but you can most readily see it with microstates. And what entanglement is, is, you know, if Tija and I were two electrons and we're basically quanta, right? So we're energy, right? So we're two electrons. And we're put into a relationship with each other where Tija is spinning in a clockwise way. I need to be counterclockwise. That's just the way we make our complementary thing up. <laughs> right? And... Um, it's so much fun to take a bath with Tisha. Uh, so you should have heard the singing. We should do it, right? Maybe we will. Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So, uh, sweet cheese, sweet energy, coming for to carry me home. Swing cheese, sweet energy, coming for to carry me home. Now I looked over Spirit Rock, and what did I see? Coming home to carry me home. Come on. All of us yogis doing Tai Chi. Coming for to carry me home. Sweet cheese, sweet cheese, sweet energy. Coming for to carry me home. Swing chi, sweet energy. Coming for to carry me home. <laughs> Bath time. <laughs> yes, so number four. <laughs> so, counterclockwise and clockwise. So we're, we're, we have a, an entangled relationship. It's, it, it's not like you would think couples therapy. It's a good thing. You know, we're entangled, it's right? It's not codependency. So if, different kind. If, that's right. Yeah. If Tisha is spun the other way, right? So from clockwise, he goes to counterclockwise. I've got to spin the other way. It's just we're complementary like that, right? So you separate us out by an inch. Same thing happens. You separate us out by 10 inches. Same thing happens. 10 feet, same thing happens. 10 miles, same thing happens. 1,000 miles, instantaneous. So Einstein said that this was spooky action at a distance because the spontaneity of our switching meant that if it was energy flowing, between these two units of energy, two electrons. It was going faster than the speed of light, and it broke the fundamental property of the universe that Einstein had proposed. So he died not liking this and, and didn't know what to make of it. Now, Einstein was correct. Nothing goes faster than the speed of light, so we're not challenging that. What we are saying, that in the quantum realm of reality, but probably it exists in Newtonian 2, you just can't see it so readily. That's the 2015 paper, but let's just stick with the quantum where you can see it. Now, I'm going to say this. 
our mental experience of space as separating entangled elements is an illusion. That the relationality of Tija to me when I'm a thousand miles away, in quotes, a thousand miles away, is irrelevant because we are interconnected. So when I said earlier today, there's both the flow of energy that you might feel in a room where there's electromagnetic waves or something resonating and it's got to flow from one entity to the other in spatial terms, all this stuff. Entanglement is not that. It's, it's not the flow of energy. It's the relationality of energy. And this brings us to a, a fundamental principle, point number four, is that the world is a relational field of massive interconnections. The world is, the reality is a relational interconnected reality. And that at the Newtonian level, we live in a body that we see as spatially separated. So I see you, I see you, I see you, I say you're there, I'm here. Blah, blah. So of course, on a Newtonian level, you go, well, we're separate. But at the quantum level, you see the huge infinity of everything. And that's what people describe when they drop into the hub. I felt infinity. That's the space piece. I felt eternity. That's the time piece. And so here today, I mean, we just have a day together, but when you do this over several days, you start having people live into the plane of possibility to feel this freedom when they can drop out of those plateaus and peaks that keep them from the plane, ironically, so they can be certain, they can be very Newtonian, you know, they can actually you know, think, I know who I am, I have the answer to everything, in school you're trained to have the answers, not the questions, so you're up in these plateaus, a certain number of peaks, blah, 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 and then you're imprisoned, sadly, to drop into the very space where we'd realize, Paul, how interconnected the whole thing is. So part of this journey... You know, we have Aiden here who's joining our team to really look at how do we work with everywhere, with the internet, with schools, with governments, like that parliamentarian, with everyone, to take the madness that contemporary culture is trapped in a Newtonian illusion of our separateness. That when you drop into the spaciousness of the plane of possibility, it isn't that you think things are interconnected. You know they are. Right? And this is, this is where true change starts to happen. So when we talk about cultural evolution, I think what we're really talking about is having people drop into this, this plane of possibility and giving them access to it. And we're going to talk about that after the break. And I just want to thank you, Tisha, for coming up. And let's thank Tisha for... And for the concert. I just want to say... Um, it's so great. Thank you for being up here. And you could hear from his voice. Tija, I don't know if you know this, is one of the most magnificent musicians and singers you ever... You ever heard him sing? Oh, my God. We, we ended our whole week together with this glorious set of songs, ending with this entire room singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. 
And hallelujah. Thank you, teacher. Thank you, teacher. So let's take a 10-minute break and come back at 3.30.
Hi, my name is Dan Siegel, and it's an honor to introduce you to this journey into the nature. Hi, my name is Dan Siegel, and it's an honor to introduce you to this journey into the nature of awareness. And what we'll do in this exploration is discover that in our experience of consciousness, we actually have two levels of reality we become aware of. One is something you're very familiar with, perhaps. It's the large object reality that Sir Isaac Newton actually studied and found that he could come up with laws to predict, for example, how the large planets that circle the sun move and he could calculate their locations. But we also have another reality that we now know about in the last 100 years called quantum reality that is absolutely demonstrated by science to be real. It just exists most prominently when things are smaller than these large objects, not only planets, but a bicycle or your body. These smaller levels of reality are all about energy flow, and they're more about probabilities rather than certainties. We're all born in these large bodies. We have a large body existence. We can learn directly that when we drop something, it falls down. We know about gravity from experience. And yet in the last 100 years, quantum properties, these properties of probability, the importance of observation or consciousness, possibly the idea of time not existing as we know it, having a directionality of change, or even space separating things out, these four properties of quantum physics are not things we usually consider when we consider our lives. So you may have mental experience and awareness that's quantum and mental experience in thought and memory that's actually more Newtonian, classical. And this helps us understand when you dive into the wheel of awareness practice why there are these distinct senses of reality that emerge. The whole point of the Wheel of Awareness is to help you both deeply understand your mind, but also integrate consciousness and create more well-being in your life. Now, the Wheel was something basically that emerged with bringing two ideas together. One was the notion that integration, which is things being different and then linked, was the basis of well-being. And the second notion was that consciousness was needed for change. Imagine that the knowing of consciousness, the experience of being aware, could be represented in this central hub, and then the outer rim would be the differentiated knowns, for example, what you see or hear or smell or taste or touch, or what you feel inside your body as a sensation, or what you might have as emotions or thoughts or memories, your mental activities, and then even a fourth aspect, a fourth segment on the rim, if you will, that represented our sense of connection to other people and the larger planet. Now, with this view, we could take a spoke of attention and systematically move it around this metaphoric wheel of awareness. And people started having improvements with a reduction in anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic symptoms. They started feeling enlivened. And as I taught it to students of mine, other therapists, I wondered about how the wheel practice 
might illuminate this new way of understanding the world. When one participant doing the wheel experienced it, she said to me, I need to bring you to Sir Isaac Newton's house because we could do the wheel of awareness around the apple tree where Sir Isaac Newton imagined the laws of gravity. The falling of the apple inspired Isaac Newton to think, why did things fall down to the earth? And so we went to Sir Isaac Newton's house to explore the nature of awareness and how we could live within these laws that Sir Isaac Newton figured out, but also in awareness, be free of those laws. So, you know, doing the wheel of awareness here is so exciting because you can experience the difference between Newtonian and quantum physics, you know? When we gathered at Sir Isaac Newton's house on this misty day, we went out around the apple tree, and there dozens of individuals had agreed to come to experience the Wheel of Awareness practice. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming today. This is, this is more than a dream come true, to have Dr. Dan Siegel here um, at Isaac Newton's house to lead the, the Wheel of Awareness meditation is is beyond words, so thank mm. you. With your eyes open, um, just uh, let your attention come here between yourself and the apple tree. And let's begin by sending a spoke of attention from the hub, now out to the rim, and you've let the breath go, and let sound fill awareness as we focus on the sensation of hearing. The pattern emerged where when people bent the spoke of attention around right into the hub of awareness, of pure awareness, time seemed to dissolve. A sense of connection to everything, other people, the planet, seemed to emerge. And there was this quality of joy and awe and love. For some it was God, for some it was a sense of deep peace. If you do this with 10,000 people and you, you find a couple things. Number one, when people share their experiences, it doesn't matter if they've never meditated before in their lives or they run monasteries, that the experience is very similar. So that's kind of interesting. The second thing is it doesn't matter their religious background, their ethnic background, their racial background, their age, their educational history. The results are very, very similar. If we can help young people, students in school, people going out into the world for the first time to access this plane of possibility, to learn to live and love and lead from the plane, then we'll create a more interconnected world of compassion and kindness. And that is something we can all work on together. Of men. I can calculate the madness of men. I, I'm sorry. I can calculate the location of celestial objects, but I cannot calculate the madness of men. And it was an incredible quote to see there in his birthplace and also the place when there was a plague at Cambridge University, he came back to study um, and figure out all these laws. And if you think about it, um, 
that's the world we knew, right? That was 350 years ago. So what we're going to do now in um, our remaining time together is really take some questions and discussion. And I want to really try to focus on how to integrate everything we've done today into how you can carry this out in your life. Because, you know, as the video tried to, tried to explore, you know, we do have this incredible moment of bridging the fields of science with the fields of spirituality. And when, I, when I've been asked to teach at spirituality conferences, even though I say I don't know anything about it, they say, well, spirituality, many people say, is about meaning beyond survival and connection beyond the skin. And so if that's what spirituality is, then to have science without spirituality makes no sense. And if science is helpful just to explore things, like, for example, for me, not, tra- not being trained in spirituality, I find it really, really fascinating as a scientist, as a clinician, as an educator, as just a person on the planet, to actually see that there are empirical studies like the nature of energy that actually help us understand the underpinnings of subjective experience, of consciousness, of information processing. And even when, bless you, and even when you realize that self-organization, which optimizes the flow of a system by creating this differentiation and linkage, is a process that is innate to complex systems. So what this also helps us see is that it isn't that we have to make things happen, as Tisha and I were trying to explore together last week and and to summarize for you here. It's actually creating the conditions in which you allow integration to arise by getting out of your own way. Those plateaus and peaks that are fixed can actually keep you from dropping into the plane of possibility, which is the portal through which integration arises. So the really exciting moment we're at then is, let's take the work that Aidan and Tija and I are doing and that uh, everyone should be involved in at some level, is how do you bring more compassion to your daily life? And in particular, we're working with, you know, digital companies to say, you know, is it really all about money acquisition? Is that really what it comes down to in our humanity? Is this who can get the most money so they die with the biggest toys collection? Or is it instead, as I spoke to in Palo Alto recently, and, and there's a video of this you can watch, you know, at Palo Alto High School and Gunn High School, there have been suicides of the young people there. And, you know, this is where many of the Silicon Valley leaders send their kids to school. And I say that only because the intensity of the competition there is so high. And the fact that it's across from Stanford University is probably just a contextual reality with Stanford having one of the lowest acceptance rates of any university. And you'll hear me if you watch this video, you can watch it through our website where after there were a number of suicides, they asked me to go do an intervention there. The students made a video of my talk because you only see the back of the heads of the people in the room, they gave me permission to just stream it because you won't see who they are. So you'll see the kids, you'll see the parents, you'll see the teachers, you'll see the 
principals, the administrators of the school. And essentially what I said to them is, you know, it's really understandable that a parent in these VUCA times, you know, VUCA is the word people use for volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. These are VUCA times for sure. And for any of you who have children, you know, the, the one thing you really want for your child is safety. You want to, hopefully you want them to be happy, but you want them to flourish. And you feel really, 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 really nervous about that in VUCA times especially. So what do you do as a parent? Well, you want to cling to something that has at least the surface illusion of certainty. Well, what in this world is certain? Well, a GPA is pretty certain. It's a number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get a high GPA. Get a really high SAT score. Get into the most elite, the elitist, most elite, what's the word? The most difficult to get into college. So when I go to a party, I can say to my friends, my kid got into X school. Oh my God, that's so hard to get into. The yes, I know, I know. And then your kid, you think, will be on the fast track towards happiness and success. But the studies are very clear. Where you go to college has zero influence on your life. It doesn't influence your amount of money you're going to make. It doesn't influence, you know, your achievement in a profession. It doesn't influence your happiness. It doesn't influence your relational happiness. And the parents are going, I go, just look at the research. And so when you think about that and you think, well, it's like we're raising children as if, if the analogy is they're a candle. We say to them, this is what I said to the kids, I said, Contemporary culture raises you to think you're the wax of the candle, right? And so when you apply to Stanford University or any other equivalent kind of thing in life, you know, where you want to get into the most competitive college so you can get into the most, like, competitive company so you can get into the most competitive graveyard or something, you know, (laughs) and the kids are going, (laughs) and I go, you know, it's like you want to be the shiniest candle, right? You're in the box, so how, how is this... How are you going to be picked out of the other dozens and dozens of candles? You've got to be the brightest candle in the box, right? So if you see a candle lit up over here, you're going to blow his wick out. And if you see a candle over here, you blow her wick out so that you're the only one who gets picked for college, right? And they're all nodding their head. I said, it's a lose-lose situation. I said, because really, you are the flame and the light beyond the wax alone. So if you really think of your identity, yes, as a candle, that's fine. You want to sleep well. You want to feed your body well. You want to exercise your body. You want to take care of your body. You want to enjoy your body. Your body is the me of you. It's the wax of you. It's the eye of you. You get about 100 years if you're lucky. You're going to live in this body. Awesome. But you are the flame beyond the wax alone, I told them. And if that is how you see yourself, when you go around the world and you see this candle and she's not lit up, what are you going to do? They go, light her up. So I go, okay. You light her up, straighten up. And then he's not lit up. What are you going to do? Light him up, light him up, right. And what does it take away from my flame that I lit up other people? You tell me. Nothing. And what does it do to the world? Makes the world a brighter place. It's just a shift in an attitude. It's a shift in a word, the four-letter nasty word, self. If you think the self is the wax of the candle, if everyone in this contemporary culture of ours thinks that way, we are doomed. 
But when people start to live, as you can see in Drawdown, as you can see there's a way to realize we are interconnected, not just with what happens now in the 100 years you get to live in your body, but for generations of living beings in the future, and we're connected to generations from the past. How do you start to feel that? You drop into the plane of possibility. See, that's where you start to literally feel the interconnection across the generations. Why? Because in this quantum state, that's where you have eternity. Someone heard this and he sent to our office a quote. I'm going to paraphrase it from Albert Einstein. It said, space and time are mental illusions. A separate self is a mental illusion. And Einstein's quote that you probably know about is, you know, we need to widen the circle of compassion because there's an optical delusion of our separateness. He didn't even say illusion. A delusion is a psychotic belief. So this optical delusion of consciousness, of our separation, allows people to make companies, whether they're digital or not, that destroy lives, destroy the health of the planet, and they do it for the sake of the bottom line of the dollar that's coming into them. So part of the challenge you know, we have as a, a species is that we get this word self and we lock it in to this private thing. So as Tej and I were giving you these examples, on the last day of our week together, these two people we're talking about in particular, I checked in with them. You could just feel the glow from them about the freedom that comes when you drop out of a previous prison of a plateau that kept you locked into a certain way of being. It's like that mother said, I can't believe I'm more than my thoughts. I can't believe I'm more than the rim. Well, these plateaus and peaks are points on the rim. Now, in terms of how you take this home, it's not that you need to go to a cave and just drop into the hub, you know, be in the plane of possibility and that's it. You know, and I've met people who try to do that and they say that's the only way to live a non-dualistic life. And, you know, I say, look, if you're going to drive a car and you're not in a plateau of car driving that has certain peaks of how to steer the wheel and press on the gas and press on the brakes, you know, when you do get an intersection, you will become one with everything because you won't press on the brakes. You know, pressing on the brakes at an intersection is a peak. That's an actualization of a possibility that came from a plateau of driving a car skill. You know, so the key is integration. Peaks, plateaus, and plane are all good. They're all good. You don't have to become someone just living in the plane of possibility. That's all. No, you want to access it because a lot of times we live, you know, just above it. So let me see if there are questions. There are lots of things we could talk about about this, but I want to make sure we have lots of time for discussion with one another. Um, and we can go from there. And the idea of we, by the way, came from uh, an online student of mine who... Um, she said to me, it was a lecture I was giving called Me to We. And she said, I am so pissed off at you. I said, okay, why, why are you pissed off? She said, because of your lecture. I said, well, what about the lecture? She goes, it's called Me to We. I said, yeah, what, what's wrong with that? She goes, you've taught us to, you know, sleep your body well, understand your attachment history so you have a coherent narrative, make sense of where you've been in this body, you know, enjoy your body, you know, to feed your body well, all these kinds of things. I said, yeah. She goes, that's all me. I said, of course that's you. 
She goes, so? I said, so what? She goes, look at your legs. She called me to we. Me to we implies dropping me. And I said, oh my God, you're right. She said, well, come up with something else. I said, I said okay. I said, how about this? Okay, I got it, I got it. I said, how about not only me, but in addition, consider yourself as a we? She said, that doesn't rhyme. I said, oh my God, okay, 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 okay. okay, okay. Integrate me and we, integrate me. Oh, how about this? We. And she said, I love it. And that's where we was born out of, you know, this interaction we had. And, you know, we is so interesting because for this eighth grade class of the school we created years ago in the, in the um, what's it called? The, uh, what's the address you give when someone graduates? Commencement address. In the commencement address I gave to these 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds, I ended it with the candle analogy and with the we. And I said, don't believe the lie that you are just a me. You are in that body as a me, and you're with each other as a we, and you're with the planet as a we. You are a me plus a we. You're a we. And I've gotten so many letters from the parents, because I've been the scientific advisor for years, from the beginning of this school. I've gotten all these letters that the kids are talking to themselves as we. In their, they're communicating with each other. And think about a world where you would start doing that. We had, and Tisha can attest to this too, we had a fellow, and I don't know how to describe this, Tisha, exactly, but he said all this stuff never got to him, never got nothing, nothing. And then he said, the very end, when you do the kindness statements with the we in them, he said, for the, am I exaggerating when I say he said, for the first time ever, you... Yeah. And it, it, he just started just saying, for the first time in my life, I don't feel alone. And he was like incredible after that. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. Now, you may think these are weird things to say. It must be like an Esalen magic thing, but it's not. I mean, this happens, and this happens all over the world. I'm just here where I was in Esalen yesterday with Tisha, and Tisha's here, and we're in love with each other, so it's all good. Um, and I hope it's okay we did our singing thing. Um, Sweet G. And, um, you know, but the issue, the issue there is, if you think about it, everyone's mind has these potentialities in it. But we get lost in a plateau of, just to be really very straight about it, when my parents told me I'm Danny in this body, I believed them. And when I got to school and my teacher says, Danny, do well on a spelling test, I believed her. And then when I get a grade, what's it called, a report card, and I see my name on it, I believed it. And it's bullshit. It's just bullshit, right? So we have to break out of the psychosis. I'm serious. We're all nice, this collective psychotic state it's a Newtonian state of our separation. When you look at each other, I mean, you could feel it. Uh, maybe, I don't know, we only did the wheel once today, but you know, when you start doing the wheel every day, you start looking at other people, you realize inside of that person is the plane. And this has to do even you know, with just people in a workshop like this, but let's say you're working with trauma. If I'm working with a person who's been traumatized, no matter what happened to you, in your family, no matter how much betrayal of people you should have been able to trust, nobody but nobody can take your plane of possibility away. 
It's just not possible. And so what happens, even in the process of therapy, is the journey to release the person's access to the plane can happen with a relationship. It can happen with a practice like this. But when people start tapping into it, and you'll see in the book there's five examples. Billy was one of them, other people, but there's a a person I call Teresa who was dealing with trauma. And you'll see the profound challenges that trauma creates on accessing the plane of possibility. Because in developmental trauma, abuse and neglect, the, the last thing you want is uncertainty. So you lock onto something because it's familiar. You get lost in familiar places. So part of the journey in healing trauma, ironically, is to relax into uncertainty, which, as we said, is a synonym for possibility. Now, why would anyone say uncertainty is a synonym for possibility? But you got the plane of possibility, and you see it right there. That lowest configuration, we can put this back up. Let me put the slides back up. Um, This lowest configuration is, in fact, massive uncertainty. And think about what it dissolves, like that person who said, I'm in pieces, but I'm at peace. I mean, just think about the incredibly beautiful, profound, poetic. She wasn't trying to be poetic. She was just being real, right? And let me tell you, and Tisha and I can tell you this, she was terrified that she had died. Her plateaus of a prior sense of only who she was, like the separate self kind of thing, but in her case, it was other issues, um, you know, were, were now literally in pieces. But she dropped into the plane where she's at peace. I've done this in different settings. And like one person gets up, he takes the microphone, he goes, that turning the spoke around was really weird. I go, can you say more what weird felt like? It was just, just really odd. I go, okay, it was weird and odd. What else was it like? It was really strange. And I go, okay, it was weird, odd, and strange. It seems like you have a propensity to compare things to what you thought they might be like or what they were like. What if you dropped out of comparing and just try to be with how it, wh- how it was when you did the practice? He goes, okay, okay. He goes, it was so peaceful. I felt so kind of at ease. And if you just hear the surface thing, oh, it was odd, or for that woman, you know, when she said, I died, you might freak out and go, oh my God, the wheel killed somebody, you know, or something like this. Now, one downside of any contemplative practice is it shatters your prior organization of how you are. And to reorganize a system, you've got to go through a period of disorganization, which should be chaotic or rigid. You just do. You just do. It's got to go through this period. Hopefully that's what we're in politically right now. And seriously, we, we may just be in a, a period of disorganization so we can ramp up and say, wow, that was a tough time. Now let's, let's get our act together. I think awakening the mind to the reality that every one of us is an extension of the same essence. That's what the plane of possibility proposal invites us to consider. Not just as an idea, but as an experience. So when you look at each other, you realize you're just looking at 
plateaus and peaks embedded in the body, it gets about 100 years, but we're from the same plane of possibility. And then when you tap into this, it's like, I don't know, you know, Jack and I teach a lot together and stuff. And I, I think, yeah, he started, since we teach so much, I know his stories, but one of the stories he teaches, and I'll see if I can paraphrase it. Um, he always says this beautiful phrase. He goes, it's not so much about the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Right? Did I say it right, Tisha? Thumbs up, yeah. So think about that in terms of our model here. We don't have to fret about the future of humanity. The presence of eternity is in the plane of possibility. So whatever way you do it, it doesn't have to be the wheel. It's not about the method. The wheel is just a metaphor. There's probably lots of ways to get in here. The issue is the plane of possibility is your birthright to tap into eternity. And let me tell you something. My whole relationship with death has changed since writing this book. It's changed. You know, my father was a mechanical engineer. He died six years ago, very much into the Newtonian world, wouldn't let you talk about spirituality or anything like that. And, you know, when he was dying, and I'm a physician, you know, so I was sitting by his bed, and he said, what's happening to me? I looked at his vital signs. He says, am I dying? I said, you know, I think you're dying. Yeah, you're dying. He goes, what should I do? And I said to him, you know, you should make sure you talk to anyone you need to talk to or you have any leftover business because it looks like it's getting really close. He said, where am I going to go? I said, I don't know. And he goes, well, where do you think I'm going to go? I said, Jesus, he's going to he'll probably kick me out of the house again right before he dies, get kicked out, he dies, and then that's it. I said, whoa, this is like... He goes, what do you think? I said, well, I don't know what happens, but I can tell you some thoughts I have. He goes, yeah, I want to know your thoughts. I said, okay, wow, you want to know my thoughts. Well, that's really interesting. So, um, so I said, I, at that time, I said, I've been a psychiatrist for 25 years, practicing psychotherapist. Never had a single patient ever, ever come to me saying, I'm freaking out. Where was I before I was conceived? And he goes, what? I go, yeah. I said, think about it this way. I said, you have like trillions and trillions of sperm, billions and billions of eggs at the moment you were conceived that could have made you. But one unique combination out of this infinite plane of possibility, this infinite sea of potential, one sperm, one egg get together, and they make the unique person that you are. He was very happy about that. And um, he goes, okay. And I said, so then you get about 100 years to be actualized in this body from this infinite sea of potential. And you get this time, and he's pretty old, you know, so he's getting close to 100 years. And I said, and then you're probably going to go back to that plane of possibility. You're going to go back to that infinite sea of potential where you came from. And we're holding hands. And he looks at me. And he says, that makes me feel so peaceful. I said, great. And then we held hands for a long, long time. I sat on his bedside. And then 
I had to go and I never saw him again. He died. And, you know, if you think of the plane of possibility, literally, as this source of all things, the formless source of all things, it's the G-O-D, right? It's the generator of diversity. I'm actually serious about that. And Rick can tell you, when I presented this in Ireland with a whole bunch of Catholic priests around, I thought I'd be hung up at the stake for saying this, the G-O-D joke. So I went up to him afterwards, realizing I probably said heresy, and I said, did I, did I hurt your feelings or anything like that? They go, oh no, that was really funny. And, um, and they felt that was good. So it's interesting, because whether you're talking about formal religion with the G-O-D view or not a G-O-D view, you know, the generator of diversity could be the bridge for science, for my father, the Newtonian mechanical engineer, you know. And it's really interesting because if, if our journey together is to try to drop out of the lie of a separate self, it's probably going to take a lot more than just, you know, making a statement about it. People have to experience it. And the really... A shocking thing for me, a startling thing for me as a scientist and as a clinician is how you can do a workshop like this or, you know, like we did at Esalen, and you can take people on this 30-minute journey that gives them, according to Dacker's review, these mystical states without any drugs that drop you into, I think, the plane of possibility. And then depending on the set and setting, as the saying goes you actually can allow this new emergence of a kind of reality, which is probably how the hallucinogens work and why they are being used for treatment of depression and post-traumatic states and addiction. Because if you think about it, when you drop yourself in this plane of possibility, if that's really where integration arises from, that's, that's what all of our job is to do. If you say, why am I here on the planet? Everyone has their own reason. But if the reason is to bring more well-being, let's say, and you say, well, integration is a source of well-being, then our task should be to let people access the plane of possibility. So when they do things, let's say, like in Drawdown, to try to work on protecting this planet and caring for this planet, it's done not out of guilt. It's done out of love. It's done out of love. Love comes from the plane of possibility. And it's why you can really work hard, no matter your age, realizing this thing may take 100 years to do. We can start now. But after your body is gone, you are not gone. You are not gone. And, you know, I have a quote in the Aware book from Michael Graziano, who's a neuroscientist at Princeton. And he has this amazing quote at the end of his book where he goes, my theory about social consciousness and Uh, I mean, consciousness and the social brain is one of the most reductionistic brain-based theories of consciousness you can have. Fine. He's saying that about himself. He could do that. He goes, yet, this theory that he has, and I talk about it a lot in the book, but I'll just quote the quote, I'll paraphrase the quote. This theory suggests that if you see the mind the way he proposes it to be, not the mind, consciousness to be the way he proposes it to be, then the mind continues after the body dies. And you say, how can that happen? Well, if the mind is about patterns of energy and information flow, and we are deeply interconnected with one another, 
then God forbid something happens to this body and I'm gone. Everything I've been living my life for that is the mind of this body, if it did a good job today, is going to continue in you and you will continue in me. And that's the way we can live. And this is what I mean by saying my whole relationship with death has changed. Because all we need to do is realize our task is to bring more light into the world. Integration is that light. So as you bring more light into the world, nobody owns the light. And the light gives rise to more light. And yeah, your wax of your candle is going to melt down and it won't be there, but the light won't end. Right? You've probably done this with candles. You take one candle, you light up the other one. Okay, that one that you used goes away. The light continues in the other one, right? That's what we need to do. That's got to be the approach. And I'm telling you, we did this with the blue school. We raised these kids up to think of themselves as we. And you should see the vitality on these kids. Each of them knows their differentiated meanness. This one likes to dance. This one likes art. This one likes science. This one wants to do physics. This one's doing this. Fine. And they have the most diverse of all sorts of things you could be diverse about. And they're all cool with the diversity of whatever they have. And it's all we. It's all this way that you can, even without that term, you can allow people to realize how deeply interconnected we are. So let's pass the microphone around. Let me thank you all uh, for your kind and caring attention. And let's do some questions. Hi. Hi. Where, where are you? Here. Hi. Hi. My question was just, um, you know, in the concept of self that you talk about, you talk about it in our culture, whether you find differences in the me and we in collectivist versus individualistic cultures. Yeah. So in anthropology, the term, the terms used are collectivistic versus individualistic. We live in an individualistic culture here. In South Africa, for example, with Ubuntu, you think of it as a collectivistic culture. And I haven't found yet, in talking to my anthropological colleagues, an integrated thing in between individualistic and collectivistic. So it kind of goes from one extreme to the other. So we would be an attempt to make that in-between thing. Now, there, there are some really interesting aspects of that. So I was doing like a, a sort of a research project in Namibia. And there's a, there was a drought there, a famine, and um, all sorts of horrible diseases going on. And we went from village to village to see if they had this mind, our, our project was to see if they had mind sight language, if they, if they, because there's a lot of reason to believe, anyway, that, that, that the evolution of humanity began with people who are direct uh, ancestors of the people in Namibia. So that's why we went there. And it was just really interesting just to see they all had mind sight language, fine. But one night around the campfire, you know, I said, um, to the translator, I said, you know, I'm really curious if you could ask this villager who was having you know, dinner with us. I said, ask him with the famine and the drought and, and you know, all the stuff going on, they seem really happy. Uh, you know, wh what does he say about that? And so the translator asked me the question and then the villager responded and this is what he responded with. He said, my people are happy because we belong. We belong to each other and we belong to earth. Then there was this silence, you know, I was taking this in. And then he asked me a question through the translator, which was, in America, do we belong? And I felt so sad, right? So 
you know, that notion of identity and belonging is something we really, I think, really have to work on because the rising depression rates and anxiety rates and suicide rates across ages, but especially for the youth, is a serious indictment of whatever we're doing in, I just call, I don't, in contemporary culture, is, uh, is just not working well. So, um, yeah, so it's a big question. What, how do we move it? But, but I, think it's, I think it's the source of so many ills on our planet is this contemporary view of a separate self. Yeah. Thank you. Do we have two microphones going around? Yes. Hi. Hi. Can you explain a little bit more about the difference between the peaks and the plateaus? Sure. So a peak would be when some possibility has turned into an actuality. So like when you decided to ask the question, can you tell me the difference between the peaks and the plateaus? You're manifesting words that are actualizations. Before you ask the question, um, you might have had, did you have like a feeling about it, like a curiosity about it? Right, so there would be like a curiosity state and a, a wondering that you might call a state of mind. And then from that state of mind, you know, you didn't ask me where you can get a good pizza. You know, you asked me about the difference between plateaus and peaks. So what arose from that kind of state of mind of, of curiosity and wonder and interest, that would be a plateau, was, it could have been any number of words that you might have said, but it, it, those are the words that arose. So the, the words themselves were the peaks, and the state of mind would have been a plateau that would have you not ask about pizza, even gluten-free pizza. You wouldn't just wouldn't ask about it. It, it would be more about this topic. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and a plateau then, you can have super low-lying plateaus. The, 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 the level of the plateau is basically, um, the level of the plateau is the, uh, the degree of probability. So let's say I have a really, really, I don't think I have it on the slides here, but it's in the book. I have a super low-lying plateau. That could be something like, I am separate, right? And then, maybe, maybe it is here, let me just see. Let me see if we have, no, I don't have it here. But imagine if that plateau were really low, then you could have other sub-plateaus that arise from that. So let's say a super low plateau that I'm taught is I'm separate. And then there might be all sorts of things. I have another plateau, meaning I should get really good grades and get in the most elite school I can get into. I should make sure I have a lot of this or that and you know, to be happy, I have to acquire lots of junk and lots of stuff so this self and this body is, you know, meets the criteria for success or whatever. And now I'm on my media, social media platforms and I got a fret about making, you know, curating all the photos I have so I look like I'm having as much fun as everybody else, right? And all, all, right. So you have all these plateaus arising from the separate self low plateau, right? So if you then learn to drop beneath that, it's like uh, I met with someone, uh, it was a private conversation, let me see how to change this. Anyway, I met with somebody who said there was a moment in his life when um, he used the word flipped, everything flipped around. And so if you can imagine if that low plateau of, okay, I'm a separate self, and then there's a plateau above that one, meaning I was told that the thing to do is make sure you get the biggest bank account, biggest house, biggest car, biggest, biggest, biggest of the biggest, whatever. Um, and every time I do that, 
I, I feel unhappy, so then I just think I should get more of the big stuff, and then it's bigger and bigger and bigger, and I'm still miserable. When a person would then drop beneath all that plateau stuff into the plane, they would do what this guy said. They'd flip. Their whole nature of, of viewing themselves flips. Because when you drop in that plane beneath those plateaus, you now have the spaciousness of eternity and infinity, right? And you realize those plateaus are just constructions. And now you're in the conduit of this deeper flow, whereas the plateaus are kind of constructed you know, filters that would only allow you to think certain ways. And so for this fellow, for example, he flipped into this other way of seeing things. And this is where you see people say, I had this sudden realization or I, you know, I, somehow I got changed. And these things can happen really fast. You, know, you don't need to go like on a five-year trek. They can happen in a day. You know, and you, know, you don't need to take hallucinogens to do it. I mean, in Michael Pollan's book, he talks about how these things transform all these things. I think it's probably the same mechanism, actually. And I just think it's kind of fascinating. In 30 minutes, you can tap into the hub and get quotes almost identical to what he's talking about from people who take hallucinogens. I just think that's fascinating. Really, I mean... It's, I'm fascinated with by it. And it may be that the plane of possibility is what they share in common. Beneath those plateaus we're talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah. Hi. Hi. You mentioned when you were talking about the, um, the attachment, your work in attachment, and then the work in mindfulness kind of coinciding. Yeah. You said that there were proven outcomes of secure attachments yes. that were the same as the mindfulness practices. Yes. What were those? So I haven't recited these in a long time. Um, so let me see if I can recite the nine. You're going to test my hippocampal ability. One is the ability to regulate the body, so body regulation. Two is the ability to have attuned communication, which means focusing on the internal state of, of one's own body or focusing on the inner mental states of, of what we call others. I'm so trying to avoid that word, but the person in the other body. So interpersonal attunement. So that's two. Number three is um, something called emotional balance, which is the idea that you allow emotional states to arise um, and stay within what I call a window of tolerance, right? So that they don't become too chaotic or too rigid, but you can feel the emotions fully. So that's called emotional balance. That's number four. Number five is a, it's a goofy term I made up, but it's called response flexibility, which just means that you have a bunch of input and, and, and instead of responding automatically, you pause basically, but so you have a flexibility of response. And there's another scientific term for that, but it's a weird term. But anyway, response flexibility is number four. Number five is, um, uh, let's see, number five would be autonoetic consciousness. Uh, auto is self and noesis is knowing. So it's basically autobiographical memory. And Endel Tolving writes a lot about this. It's the ability to sit in the present, reflect on the past, and connect to the future. So it connects past, present, future. It's a formal term, mental time travel. So there's mental time travel. Is that number five? Um, number six is uh, empathy. Uh, making, if, if mental time travel is making a mindset map of yourself, uh, which you could also call insight, um, this, this next one, we're going six or seven, what is this? Six would be empathy, making a mindset map of others. Uh, so that's six. Then um, 
Number seven would be, uh, but I, I think I'm missing one, but let's just keep on going. Was it empathy seven? Empathy was seven. Morality, thank you, is eight. Maybe, maybe some of my old students are here. Seven. There's one more. There's morality. Intuition is, is intuition. Nine is intuition. What do you, what's the, why don't you list them off? you have the list there? Go, read it to me, please. Here we go. You ready? Do we have a microphone over here? Here we go. This is from all sorts of books. Yeah, good. So these are the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex, actually, that are associated with both mindfulness and the first eight of the nine are associated with secure attachment. All right. So number one is body regulation. Two is attuned communication. Three is emotional balance. Four is fear modulation. Oh, that's I forgot that one. Yeah. Five is response flexibility. Six is insight. Seven is empathy. Eight is morality, and nine is intuition. Yeah, so I forgot fear modulation. Thank you. Good. Nice list. And, and, and so the idea there, amazingly, is that these are all dependent on the integrative networks of the prefrontal region. And um, uh, just, it's just kind of a fascinating finding that it's integrative prefrontal function. It's um, secure attachment, first eight of the nine. We've never studied intuition. And uh, all nine are outcomes of mindfulness and compassion training. The three-pillar training. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's just amazing. And then if you just ask a person, how many would like to have that in yourself? You'd say, yeah. How many would like to have in your spouse? Yeah. How many would like that to have in your president? Yeah. You know. <laughs> and you could say that in any election cycle. I mean, it's just true. Um, you know, but so, you know, yeah. I mean, it's an amazing list. It's an absolutely amazing list. And that's the list I gave to John Kabat-Zinn that day on the panel. It was like hilarious because... I just said, it's just weird. You guys have found that. We've found it. And it comes... I had a patient who lost those because of an accident I talk about in the Mindsight book. Yeah, sad story. Yeah. Next. Uh, during the uh, wheel practice, uh, you had us go to the wave of the breath. Yes. The breath, is that the hub, the spoke, or the rim? So the breath would be a, a rim. The breath is the rim, focusing attention on the breath is the spoke, and your awareness of the breath is the hub. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that you're aware of is the rim. The, uh, the way you choose to focus attention on it is the spoke. And, you know, we didn't go over it, but I can show it to you if you want. It's a, it's a little complicated to go through, but uh, basically it looks like this. Actually, this is a better one. Is that the spoke probably correlates with a oscillating process, um, whether it's oscillating in the world or oscillating in the brain. For sure, it's oscillating in the brain. So there are these things called connectome harmonics, which are also known as you know 40 cycle per second hertz in some studies. Hertz is cycles per second. And there seems to be something connected with a sweep between the thalamus and the cortex that sort of sweeps anything activated in the brain at that time. So, you know, because the question is, if, if awareness is in the plane and the thing you're aware of is in the plateau and peak, well, then how are you, are you aware of something? Right, we didn't cover that. But so the way you're probably aware of something is this looping thing. There's probably some way where you can loop into it. And this actually is a really useful model to understand things, for example, like... Um, different states of consciousness, and I talk a lot about this in the book, are probably different um, 
ratios of plane to above plane values. So for example, if I'm walking down the street um, and I'm really thinking about some problem I'm trying to solve in the book I'm writing or something, I'm going to let myself get just lost in the above plane stuff. If I'm more wanting to just rest in some kind of balanced flow as I'm walking down the path and just feeling eternity and also feeling the wind and all this stuff, then I'm sort of 50-50. Or, you know, I might want to just bliss out in the plane and I might just go, you know, to 99 to 1 and like hardly be aware of anything. Whereas if you remember what a lot of people said, um, and this is why it's so helpful to get people try to articulate as best they can, here's a way to think about it. With this diagram in mind, um, when you learn after today to go out in the world and like that be able to tap into your plane of possibility, what it means, as someone on this side said so beautifully, I can have a spaciousness around a thought that would arise whereas before the thought would consume me. So the way to say that in a ratio term is, you know, when the, when the, let's say the peak is a thought. When the peak arises, you stay with a lot of um, plain aspects in the ratio. Whereas if you're consumed with a thought, it's like 99 thought, one in the plane. So you're aware of the thought, but that thought has you. You know what I'm saying? When you learn to move your ratio around at will, which is what doing the wheel of awareness allows you to do, it allows you, just like Billy, to be able to say to the teacher, I'm noticing I'm kind of rim-dominant right now. And um, I don't think this is a good state, because if I had no hub, I'd be punching Joey. So please let me change my ratio. That would really be probably a more adaptive way for me to function. You know, he's not going to say that. But that's basically what he said. And so in these terms was he's filling the sweep ratio with more plane in it, right? Now, you may choose to get lost in lovemaking, you know. So when you're lovemaking, you want to maybe be 50-50 or you want to be mostly in your, you know, on, the, on the peaks or whatever, and that's fine. But you choose how to work your ratio of plane to plateau and peak. That makes sense? So this is how you, this comes to the question of, you know, with the breath, there's a lot of reasons why the breath, you know, can be very helpful. It's grounding, it's automatic, it's one of the few things you can control that's both automatic and controllable. And, you know, it has both an accelerating in-breath and a decelerating out-breath component to it, so it balances the parasympathetic and sympathetic system. There's lots of reasons why, you know, every culture uses the breath, you know, and bringing the breath into awareness is different than just breathing. And, and, it, and it, it literally it integrates the accelerating brake system to just be aware of the breath. It's fascinating. And if you're ever in a pinch, just make the, the um, ex- exhalation longer than the inspiration. And then you'll be increasing the brakes to slow things down. It's an easy trick, like four to seven. You can just do that. Four in-breath, seven out-breath. Four in-breath. Just do that for a first cycle. You'll calm down. Yeah. Whoever has the microphone. And we can go both sides if we have two. Okay, whoever has it, yes. Um, my question was about uh, a sense of self and mental health. Um, yes. I may have misheard, but I thought you said earlier that one of the outcomes of secure attachment and mindfulness was a stable sense of self. Yes, a coherent sense of self, yes. Okay, and also a loosened sense hold of it, self. Hold it right up to you. 
uh, and also a loosened sense of self was a goal of meditation. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about those two ideas of a loosened sense of self and a stable sense of self. Yes, this is a fantastic question. Thank you so much. A fantastic question. You know, Mark Lesser has a beautiful book with the best uh, title of a book to address your question, Know Yourself, Forget Yourself. Um, it's, it's such a great title. Um, so here's the idea, and it's, it's such an important question. Um, and there may be a lot of different ways of approaching this, uh, and it brings up so much, so let me honor the fact that we're at our time boundary. Um, let me just address it, and then, then we'll, have to, we'll have to give a big uh, thank you to all of you. Um, so let me just say this. The um, various attachment experiences have been shown to be associated with either rigid sense of self or confusing sense of self or fragmented sense of self in the sense of dissociation that are impediments to well-being to various degrees. Um, And so the idea of secure attachment, even the movement towards security, involving this creation of a coherent self, um, comes straight out of the attachment work, comes straight out of psychotherapy work. And it also, since I teach a lot with Jack, you know, it comes out of the work he and I do together, talking to people with them, especially asking Jack as a spiritual teacher, can I do this and this and this? And Jack says, no, you need therapy. You know, and a a lot of people, um, sadly, go to meditation as a spiritual bypass, a term I think someone else coined, but Jack uses. Um, And the spiritual bypass is, and over the last week, we've actually seen this in a number of our leaders in the field, sadly, publicly, um, where, you know, they may study the study or do the walk the talk the talk but they don't walk the walk you know where there's this kind of you know saying things as they should be but actually there's behaviors that are unethical that are invasive that are mean that are really destructive and someone who's teaching mindfulness so it's like whoa baby you know it's like so you see these spiritual bypasses not just in the leaders in the field but lots of people where someone comes to mindfulness meditation to try to escape their feelings and I was teaching in another country once, and just to give you an example, where like the leader in this country, and this is what she was told me, she was the number one leader of mindfulness meditation, her view was the only place to live that was true to non-duality was in the hub. And everything on the rim was an illusion and not real. And her two kids who were in their 30s were at dinner with me with her when she said this, and they're like crying. And I said, well, what about love for your kids, which is a rim point? And she goes, that's unreal too. And it was like this, I said, well, what does your hub feel like? And she goes, well, it's non-dual. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, completely empty. And I said, it's not full of joy. She goes, no, joy is an illusion. And this was not a woman who was laughing or goofing around like Tija and I do. I mean, you know, so, so when I talked to, Jack and others, you know, about this kind of thing, and particularly about this person, but you see this a lot, that would be considered a spiritual bypass. That person has not created a coherent self where she can then expand herself. She's contracted into some philosophical, whatever you call it, but it's rigid and chaotic, and for her kids, it was so sad. You know, all for the sake of being like the meditation guru in this country, it was like, wow. And so, 
The idea there is you can absolutely, now people may disagree with this, but this is my view because you're asking, you know, from an attachment point of view, you want to have a coherent narrative. And as you do, you say, this is what this body has been through. This is why maybe I'm afraid of being uh, rejected by people or I'm scared to really be in love with someone. And what I need to do is allow myself to bring love inside of myself, you know, so I can bring this feeling of kindness to myself. But then when I realize that phrase myself is actually not limited to my body. So once I can, I can have that coherent core, then I can expand myself. And even with Dacker, you know, we were talking about what are formally in scientific terms called the self-transcendent emotions of gratitude, compassion, and awe, right? So I said to Dacker, I said, you know, we have a moment here, all of us, to watch out for this word self, and it's called self-transcendent. How about self-expanding? And he goes, absolutely. That's what it is. So, because otherwise it implies self-transcendent means yourself is only your body, and then you're transcending the self by... No, we need to, I mean, we really need to think this deeply through. I don't know how exactly we're going to do this, but we need to watch out for this linguistic lie that that four-letter word means that you're only in your body. So you want to develop a coherent inner self, let's put it that way, so that you're then open to then realizing the internature of yourself too. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's a really great question to end with. So let me thank all of us for all this wonderful light and I want to wish you all the best and let's go out and integrate. Thank you so much. CE people, don't forget to sign out, please. CE people, thank you.